Create, connect, communicate. Create, connect, communicate. Magical, enigmatical, gift of gab, super, natural, story, from the space Come, well lit. So, is there anything that you don't want to talk about? I think no, you're I'll pretty, talk uh, about anything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, awesome. I don't want to get canceled, but <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but let's, uh, yeah, we'll see. Let's not. If um, there's something that's uh, uncomfortable, I'll say I don't want to get canceled. Then right, right, right. That, that's our that's our cue. <laughs> Beautiful. All right. Awesome. So we are ready to get this party started. Are we not, sir? Because all right. So here we go. Good morning, humans. Bebop. And welcome back to another jazzy episode of Firelight Chats, broadcast to your ears on syncopated riffs from our Space Lab studios here in Da'an, Taipei, Taiwan. Today, we have a very special treat for you, a jam session of artful conversation, a purely platonic, professional menage a trois of mirth and music, a tenaciously diverse trio. Little me on this EV RE20 with occasional vocals. Mocha keeping time and laying down snoring bass lines in the background. And on the main mic, our distinguished guest, a veritable master of gypsy jazz and no less itinerant himself, swinging his way all the wonderful way from Montreal, Canada via Japan, where he now resides, the jazziest guitar hero, the one and only Dennis. Chang, Dennis, Huang Ying, and Yoroshiku, How are you, sir? Welcome, welcome. I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, thank you very much for being here. We mentioned from the outset that you are now residing in Japan, but you were here on the gold card here in Taiwan before that. Yes, I was living here during the pandemic, indeed. Did you get stuck here or did you escape to here from somewhere? I did not escape. I got stuck. I arrived here on, I still remember, February 24th of 2020. I came here for a actually a gypsy jazz festival that will finally resume this year. I came here for that and it got canceled, I think, the day after I arrived. So that's when everything, like, all hell broke loose. Right. And I was stuck since then. Oh, no way. February 24th of 2020. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's right before, huh? Right before, yeah. Because people were still confused. Well, what's going on in the world? Because at that time, uh, I don't know if you remember, there was I was in Japan, right? And in Yokohama, there was a cruise ship that was stuck there, oh, right? That right. was happening, and I was there. I was close by, and everyone's wondering, what's going on, what's going on? There were all these policies. And then at the same time, I was, I was also supposed to go to Korea, but that trip got canceled because Korea was one of the first Asian places outside of China, of course, to got hit, really, really hit hard by the, the, the pandemic. Oh, no way. Yeah. I remember that that cruise ship was big yes, news in the beginning. That was big news, yeah. And there was like thousands of people who got COVID. It was like <laughs> a zombie ship, right? <laughs> yeah. And I remember when they, the authorities uh, released the, the, the passengers, all right, just go home. And they took them, you know, I already saw the, the Densha, the, the, the train. Right. Said, oh, is that, is that okay? <laughs> no way. Oh, wow. Okay. So you were here for the whole time of the 
of the pandemic? So the thing is, when I say I was stuck, technically I was allowed to go home. But the thing is, I had my return flight back to Tokyo, which kept getting delayed and then canceled. And that went on for weeks. And when I tried to contact the airlines, I said, oh, we don't do refunds, sorry. I was like, oh, oh, okay, well, that's like a lot of money down the drain. Yeah. He said, you can use it another time, like this year. <laughs> yeah, obviously <laughs> This not. year, yeah. It took me a year to get the refund. And then at that same time, the rest of the world was getting hit hard by uh, the pandemic. Then Canada was going through lockdowns. And my work involves a lot of traveling. My work relies on traveling. And so even if, first of all, I had no way to go back home, and if uh, I had to go back home, the flights were super expensive. And not only were they expensive, if I went back home, I, th- I don't remember if they were implementing uh, the quarantine thing yet. I don't remember. But I just remember that there were lockdowns. So even if I went back home, I couldn't even do my work. Mm. So for the price to fly back home and maybe even do the quarantine, I could live in Taiwan for several months, right. even if I couldn't work in Taiwan. So, you know, the choice was very obvious. Yes, exactly. Okay, so... You have some connections to Taiwan as well. So you are a Taiwanese Canadian. Yes. Okay. My parents are from Taiwan. So from your bio on your website, it says, I grew up in Quebec, officially a province of Canada, but where the language and culture is undeniably different from the rest of Canada. I was born to Francophile Taiwanese parents who fled an authoritarian regime. I was sent to school under France's education system. I grew up with people of various faiths and cultures. I went to music school to get a degree in classical music theory. I befriended gypsies. I immersed myself in their culture and learned their language. For whatever it's worth, that is who I am. Oh, wow. I wrote that. Okay, wow. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Sounds pretty good. Yeah, so can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? I was born and raised in Montreal, Quebec. My parents came from Taiwan. My father which is very interesting. Most Asians who immigrate to North America, they cross the Pacific Ocean, but my father crossed the Atlantic Ocean. Mm. So he was in Switzerland. Went the other way. Yes, exactly, the other way around. The story goes, I could be a little bit wrong, but from what I remember, is that the original plan was for my father to move to the west coast of Canada for whatever reason, I don't know. But, of course, he stopped in Montreal first, maybe because he had a friend there. He definitely had a friend there, but whatever reason, he chose to stop in Montreal first. And then his friend convinced him to stay in Montreal. He said, you know, Waypen, my father's name, you speak French. Why don't you just stay here? I can get you a job. And so my father, the first job I think he got in Canada was, I think, teaching French at the college level. Like, not teaching the French language, but a French class, you know, like a French literature, things like that. Okay. So that's <laughs> that's his first job. Wow. So why did he speak French? Was this all, did he learn this when he went to Switzerland or had he already had some kind of like French education in Taiwan? That's what I'm not very sure of. Mm. I, I'd have to ask my uncle or my mother. Uh, I know that my mother doesn't really like to talk about the past too much, uh, mm. so I don't really bring that up. I just know from my uncle, which I, I saw my uncle two weeks ago, and he was just telling me that when my father was young, he really loved languages. So my father, I know he was super fluent, obviously, in Taiyu, Taiwanese, mm-hmm. Mandarin, perfectly fluent in French, English, and Japanese. Those wow. were probably the five languages he probably speaks at a native level. And then he had knowledge of other languages as well. But yeah, I, I, apparently my father really liked to study. I, I didn't get to know my father very well. We can talk about that later. Yeah. But. Okay. Okay. So 
your parents fled an authoritarian regime. We just came out of a holiday here, uh, Arba 228 uh, here in Taiwan. So what happened with your father? That's the thing. Again, my father passed away suddenly when I was about 20 years old. That was a long time ago. And like I said, it's not always easy to approach to talk about the past with my mother. All I know growing up, they didn't talk politics with me, with me and my brothers. We, we lived a really spoiled and sheltered life. So completely unaware of this. All I know is that my mother complained a lot <laughs> about, about the past, right. about how difficult, how they were persecuted. I know my aunt, who's I think a relatively well-known politician in Nanto, in the middle of Taiwan, mm -hmm. I think... She was a journalist in the 70s, and I think she was imprisoned for her political beliefs. And then I, I'm told that my, my family, from my father's side, is, it was mainly my father and his little brother, my last surviving uncle whom I saw two weeks ago, who were kind of, quote-unquote, troublemakers, who kind of didn't want to, uh, how do you say, uh, kneel down. Kneel down, right. So they had to leave. Wow. That's, what, that's all I know. I don't know the specific details. Okay, so you was this during the Kuomintang era, or also does this go back all the way to you know the Japanese colonialism as well? My father was born towards the tail end of uh, the Japanese colonialism era, so this would be in the 50s, 60s, 70s, right? Especially. Okay. I know. Uh, I think he immigrated to Canada around 19. So my brother was born shortly, so it's probably early 1970s. Okay. I think. And I think he was in Europe, maybe in the 60s. So did you grow up with some deep connections to Taiwan? You, you mentioned that you, you grew up sheltered and spoiled. So did you have like a very kind of Canadian, you know, youth? Or did your parents kind of try to connect you to Taiwan? No, they didn't connect me to Taiwan in, it. in any way, <laughs> in, in, any way whatsoever. Oh. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, I I don't know if I had a Canadian child. I mean, I was born and raised in Montreal, Quebec. I just had a I just had a child. Never really think about identity or anything like that. Never never thinking about national identity or any like cultural identity. It was uh, it was a very innocent life. It was very fun. Right, and then you grew up also with an immersion of cultures and languages, especially yes. in Montreal. So they decided to send me to private school. So for those who are unaware, Quebec is the, the French-speaking province of Canada. Mm -hmm. The official language is French. Right. But the French that is spoken in Quebec is quite different from the French spoken in France or Europe in general. So it's different. The accent is very different. There are a lot of different uh, words, different vocabulary. So that's where I was born and raised. But my parents sent me to school under the French system from France. Mm. So there's already that. So what are the biggest differences between or your kind of experiences in this French school? Was there any kind of maybe culture shock or differences like, you know, when you were at school and then when you left school, did you notice some kind of gaps? Culture shock, not in terms of like cultural identity or ethnic identity none of that i didn't grow up thinking any way like that we we're just a big melting pot and i we didn't really think any different and those mm. days growing up in the 90s people were so on pc <laughs> but everyone it's of course they made me they made fun of me for being asian but they made fun of every, each other for being whatever anything so right. it's just like it's uh, kids. equal territory yes. so like now it's not like no hard feelings at all so I wouldn't even call it recent. It's just being stupid kids at the, in the 90s, especially. Right. But then, so it's it's the private 
education system, right? So mm. when I finished that, I decided to go. I didn't decide. My brother decided for me <laughs> that I would go. I would go to school under the public school system. That's where I had the first major culture shock in terms of uh, I guess social and economic disparity. Like from went from a place where everyone was kind of you know grew up sheltered and fairly well off. Mm-hmm. Then I went to school with people, teen, uh, pregnant teens, and like single moms. I was like, whoa. <laughs> smoking, smoking weed during break. Yeah, yeah, things like that. Well, that happened in private school too, but okay. it was more like in a privileged way. <laughs> I don't yeah. do drugs though. Right. <laughs> don't do drugs. Never kids. did. Oh, wait. So this private school was until it was primary school? No, 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 no. Okay. Uh, so it's, it's it's very complicated. In Quebec, the, the education system, um, are you from America? Is that it? Yeah. You're from America? All right. Sorry. Uh, the, no, no, no. I apologize. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> the, I think it's complicated. First of all, I went under the French system, and then there's the Quebec system. Okay. And then there's the Canadian system. There are three Ooh. systems in Quebec. From what I understand, the last two years of high school don't exist. Instead, what we have is something that they call college, but it's not the American idea of college. It's like a prep. Yeah, 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 right, yeah. Right, right, so you have right. two years of that, and you—it's kind of like something between university and high school. So you actually choose your major, but it's not an actual uh, bachelor's degree. It's a right. So yeah, they call that CEGEP. C. It's an acronym: college something something something. So I don't okay. know what the acronym is. So that's when I left the French high school system, but. In the French high school system, I think in the French high school, it's missing one year from the Quebec system. So I actually, when I left that, I was a year younger than everyone else when I entered the public system. Yeah, it's complicated like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's like three different kingdoms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So when was the first time you actually came to Taiwan? Because you said, you know, your parents kind of sheltered you from that part of your history. So. Yes. My earliest memory was when I was six years old. I may have come earlier. But I, I'd have memories in my head of being six years old mm. with my teddy bear backpack. It was really cool. Cute. Uh, I know that I came when my paternal grandmother passed away. I think I might have been nine, ten years old. Uh, <laughs> it was when the Super Nintendo was released. So that year. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> then you got to year. look that up. Because yeah. <laughs> I got that. <laughs> Can figure out what year that was. The Super Famicom. <laughs> All right. Uh <laughs> And then I came back when I was 13. And then I came back when my father passed away for his funeral. And then after that, that was in 2002. So I was 20 years old. So I'm 40 years old. And then I started coming regularly, I think around 2006 or 2007. I've been here every year since, every winter since. In the beginning, it was more about my grandmother who partially raised me. She was getting old and she had Alzheimer's dementia so i wanted to see her you know and spend time with her mm. i wasn't always the most grateful child you know you know you don't know these things but yeah. I, I really appreciate her and uh i want to spend as much time as i could and also i realized as an as a freelance musician there was no reason for me to have to stay in montreal during the super cold winters I was like why am i here <laughs> right yeah, so i started going like all right more and more time to be honest it was not fun in the beginning to come to taiwan because i didn't grow up speaking mandarin so it was I, I kind of resented coming, but I still made an effort just to come here until one day I decided, you know what? I'm going to just start learning Mandarin. And just, okay. It's been more enjoyable since. Right, 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 right. That was oh. 2013, 2014 when I started speaking Mandarin. Okay. That's when you started to really kind of study and yeah, uh, study more seriously. It was not actually studying. What was pretty funny was I had a, a former girlfriend. We're mm. still very good friends. 
It's uh-huh. usually how it works. Yes, really, really good. She's she's so wonderful. Can I plug her? Yeah. She's an amazing Mandarin teacher. Her name oh. is Jenny Lin. JL Mandarin School. JL and, Mandarin School. Uh, and I think I'm the one who gave her the idea to quit her job to become a full-time Mandarin teacher. Now she teaches like super high-profile clients like diplomats, actresses, singers. And like, yeah, she's like that high level. She's really good. Huh, okay. She, she has this natural talent for, for teaching. And we started going out together. But I don't know why, but she's like, we'd go to the restaurant and she'd, Tell me, hey Dennis, say this to the waiter. Like, mm. so that's where it all started. So right. I, started, I started, it's kind of like a game. All right, if I say this, <laughs> this is going to happen. All right. And that's how, so I kind of learned that way, not through a school, but just like practical Chinese. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, kind of role playing. She's just remote controlling. Yeah, yeah, you. yeah. Just say this, say this, say this, say that. Like, <laughs> See okay. what happens. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. That was fun. Did she ever trick you? In what way? No, 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 no. She's super cool. <laughs> she no, she's she make you say something funny, and we're no, no longer together, but she's great. Okay, wow, I need some Chinese lessons, so I uh-huh, think uh-huh. I might have to hit her up. But Woo. I don't have a diplomat budget, so <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay, so what about music? You know, I think you are most well known for your music. What is the genesis of Dennis Chang's music career? It all started when kind of like early teens, all my friends in school were playing. For, suddenly, for some reason, I guess it was trendy at that time to play music. All mm. of my, they started playing, so I, I wanted to play that. But if you want the more funny story, I can tell that. It's a bit longer. Nice. Let's so, go. Here's the funny story, everyone. My parents, obviously, uh, <laughs> were Asian. <laughs> and just like I have two older brothers, much significantly older. I was... Uh, there's an accident there's, oh, almost no. no 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 not at all not at all no, <laughs> okay, no, no. okay but there was a 10-year difference between me and my elder brother so we're mm. two brothers and one in the middle so significant age gap and when they were kids they were made to learn piano right like surprise, any age, surprise. Like, that's a surprise Woo! <laughs> and apparently they never practiced so they gave up shortly after i and did the I, same thing yeah uh, you went through the same thing yeah when yeah. i um when I came of age, maybe like five, six years old, my parents apparently had a conversation about me and said, well, Charles and Eric never practice. That means Dennis will never practice. Let's just forget about music for him. Oh, no way. That's how it started. It's not over yet. And then I told you when I came to Taiwan for my paternal grandmother's uh, funeral, mm-hmm. that was when the Super Nintendo was released. Right. So you have to figure out what that was. Uh, <laughs> it's trivia. I was staying at my cousin's place. And in my cousin's place, I distinctly remembered an acoustic guitar in the bedroom, lying in the corner, and I kept touching it, stroking it, and like looking at it. Right. And my uh, my cousin went to my uh, mother and said, "Dennis seems really, really intrigued by that guitar. You know, I never play; it's just a decoration. If you want, you can take it." And my mother said, "No, Dennis has no interest in music. Forget about it." <laughs> <laughs> They wrote you off from day one <laughs> yeah, yeah, because of your older brothers. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Right. So it's then, okay, yeah, well, it's not middle class. I don't know what the, how, I guess it's considered middle school, but I don't know how it is. In, in the Frenchism, there's no middle school or anything like that. But anyway, my friends were all playing. And I asked my mom, hey, mom, can I buy a guitar? Casually said, yeah, sure. So I just had to ask for it. Yeah. <laughs> as long as you show interest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. But it's, it really sounds like your parents were very kind of supportive of you guys in anything you wanted to do. Yes. Yes. Some way. Yeah, someone. <laughs> you know what? They were not the most, they, they were not typical Asians. You know, they were like, why are you no doctor yet? <laughs> they were not they like weren't that. like that. No, they were okay, not. Okay, okay. No. Well, they were, well, they definitely stressed academic uh, excellence and things like that. But unfortunately, I failed on that part. <laughs> I didn't really care so much for school. Right. So what was your first guitar? 
Uh, it was a uh, there's this famous company called Gibson. They have this oh, budget course, brand. Yeah. It's a budget brand called Epiphone. Mm. So it's an Epiphone uh, Les Paul copy. It was really Ooh. really cheap. I think. Nice. Well, inflation is different, but in those days it was like maybe 250 US or something. Okay, nice. I remember where I got it? Yeah. Right, and I've noticed from your uh, DC school, right, yeah. Um, yeah. that you are really into kind of playing by ear. But I also read somewhere that you have a degree in classical music theory. Yes, music theory as well. So. I was very intrigued by that stuff too. Yeah, the academic side of music uh, it, it interests it interested me a lot. It still does to a certain extent. That was in college. Yes, in Canada. Yes, because in case you don't know, in Quebec, uh, education is subsidized. So I was right. basically we were basically paying like maybe in those days a thousand dollars a year. That's cheap. That's, that's crazy. It's for like for top tier education. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean compared to the states. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. totally. But crazy. It's subsidized, and I, I, right now, as an adult, I don't have kids, but I have to pay school tax every year. It's it's hefty. Oh, so I see. That's where it's coming from. That's where it comes from. Okay, so what about those studies? What do you kind of remember the most from that time period studying? You know, in this very kind of academic way, music. Um. It was a lot of fun because I I learned to appreciate certain aspects of classical music that I didn't appreciate before. And the first few years, the basic courses were a lot of fun. Uh, but then after it starts to get super abstract, and that's when I started to have less fun. Mm. I mean, <laughs> anything is worth studying, but this this kind of study that maybe affects zero point zero 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 one percent of the world. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I was also getting really into into jazz music. And I was starting to play gigs so that my, my, my GPA dropped significantly. It was pretty funny because one of my professors actually told me, Dennis, what's going on? Is something going on with you? Like your grades are dropping. Right. By then, I just didn't care anymore about school. I, I didn't drop out because, you know, I might as well finish it. Mm -hmm. But it was pretty much as if I dropped out. And was that because you fell in love with gigs and performing or I, I fell in love with playing music that, you know, studying music, reading about music, talking about music is not the same as playing music. Mm hmm. So those are two very, the, the academic, uh, going to music school and playing music in the real world, it's kind of, you have two spheres. They obviously intersect, but, you know, they're two different things. Yes, exactly. There's some overlap, but. Yes, that's the word, overlap. Yeah. Right. Huh. So when you first got that first guitar, what were some of your first songs, some of the, you know, kind of bands maybe that you were emulating? Was it classical? Was it jazz? Was it rock? Was it some other kind of genre? Um. So I went to buy my guitar with this friend of mine who, was, who had been playing guitar for a number of years. So he helped me buy it and then we took it home and he taught me how to read tablature, which is a form of notation made for guitar. It's very, very easy to read. And then he taught me, he wrote down in tablature how to play the, the Pulp Fiction song. Because that, in, that, in those days, that was like the super popular, you know, the surf song. Yeah. Iserlu, that's what it's called. And of course, I played it super poorly, playing with one finger and just trying my best to just get that going and then for some reason very very early on i got relatively obsessed with guitar like i said i, I want to be good whatever that meant i didn't even know what good meant but i just knew i wanted to be good right but i didn't know what i wanted to do with the guitar so i touched i played a bit of everything without ever doing anything well okay until the age of 15 or 16 i saw on tv pbs which is a public, you know, public i don't know, if, I don't know if people, broadcasting people know that, system yeah. right yeah, yeah pub public broadcasting system in america but it also we have that in canada as well okay 
And there's this uh, program called Austin City Limits. Oh, yes. you know about that? yes. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. And there was this guitar player named Eric Johnson. And that was the... I can't say he was ever an influence on me, but it was the very, very first time that I saw guitar being played at an extremely, extremely high level. I'd never yeah. seen anything like that. Before that, was I heard rock players, but play well of course but this is like next level stuff and i was like whoa you can do that on the guitar and i started taking lessons with different teachers it's like I'm, I'm serious about music i practiced a lot but i think in those days that was wasted practice because i didn't know what i wanted to do and i was spending a lot was doing things that weren't very efficient unfortunately because i don't come from a musical environment so it, it, right. i was all on my own there was no youtube either and it wasn't until I was 18 that I fell in love with this guitar player named Django Reinhardt. And that's when things really narrowed down. This is exactly what I want to do. This is my destiny. This was at 18 years old. Yes. You yes. discovered Django. Yes. And then from there, it's like, this is what I'm going to do. It's unbelievable. I wish for everyone, it doesn't have to be music, to find something they, they love so much. And it, it's something that I cannot describe with words. Because as soon as I heard him, I just like, whoa, it just rocked my world. Right. Yes. Which song was it? Uh, it's Minor Swing oh my from goodness. 1937. That is which, so yeah. good. Yes. Django Reinhardt is uh, pretty much, I think, unanimously considered a genius. Yes. Um, yes. It's, it's really crazy. Yesterday, I had another guest, and he's an artist here in Taiwan, Jason Cole Major. He has a show, actually, in Beitou right now. Um, and he was telling about when he was in his studio in New York, he would listen to Django Reinhardt. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, so I told him about you, and he's like, oh, I have to listen to this. Send him my regards, because he okay. really loves Django. So, wow. Yeah, yeah, it was a crazy, crazy kind of coincidence. But can you tell us about Django? Because uh, he is a very interesting character, on top of being a genius musician as well. So, Yes, um, so Django Reinhardt was born in 1910, January 27th of 1910. This is coming off the top of the head, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, 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 yeah. We know these things. He was he passed away May sixteenth, nineteen fifty three. These are things that us nerds know. <laughs> wow. And Keep on going. May fifteenth, nineteen fifty three, he had McDonald's. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, okay, where do I start? Uh, you can Super Nintendo was. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but feel free to interrupt me because I can talk a lot about this. Oh, but, keep um, going. I want to so hear. So Django Reinhardt was was a gypsy. Mm. Romani. Uh, Yes, so the, I guess the politically correct term is Romani, but for Romanis, I have to talk a little bit about this. It's a little bit of a controversial topic because saying Romani is kind of like saying Chinese, but if you go to China, you'll see so many different ethnic groups, so many cultural subgroups, so yeah. many dialects. Django was specifically what we call a Sinto, yeah. Sinto or Sinti. Sinti is the plural form. The Sinti categorically reject the term Roma. Mm. They need to be called, they want to be called Sinti above all else or Gypsy. Okay. It's a bit of a tricky thing. Yeah. And basically a Sinto once asked me, hey Dennis, what's this thing? What's the difference between Taiwan and China? And I, you know what I replied? Oh, that's I said, interesting. I said, well, what's the difference between Sinti and Roma? And he said, say no more. Yeah, right. Because I don't, I don't want to get into politics here. But if you talk to Chinese people, they will call us Chinese. I mean, we are ethnically Han China. I am. I don't know. Actually, actually I'm not. Mm. But um, mm. and it's pretty funny. Sometimes when I interact with uh, when I fly back to Canada and I land in Vancouver, I remember sometimes there are people next to me trying to speak to me in Chinese because it's the first time in Canada. And it's like, where are you from? 
Oh, I'm from Taiwan. Oh, so you speak uh, uh, what is what they say, Fujianhua? Man, you right, speak right, this, right. They talk as I've, and so the Sinti have this thing where they resent being called Roma. Mm. Yeah, and they are okay with Gypsy because Gypsy, among maybe other Roma, could be pejorative, right? So among yeah, it's very complicated. Yeah, it's very very complicated in that sense. Yes, mm-hmm. no, they really really embrace that term. Where are Sinti mostly located? Yes, mm-hmm. so they settled in Western Europe several, several centuries ago. And um, they are mainly located, the, the main hub is Germany. So in the Sinti dialect, there are a lot of German loanwords. And then they spread out to you know Austria, Belgium, the Netherlands, Northern Italy, and France. That's kind of the main, main hub. And World War II, you know, changed a lot of Disperse things Disperse them too. even more. Yes, mm. and then also with... Uh, when the EU was created, that's when a lot of Roma refugees left Eastern Europe and settled in those countries as well, in Western Europe. And that's when Sinti started to really insist to be called Sinti first and foremost. I see. Because they were putting everyone in the same category. Right. Yeah. And the Roma or Gypsy and or Sinti, they underwent a lot of persecution as well, yes. right? You kind of alluded to it with the World War, but, you know, Hitler... Yes. So that was Django Reinhardt. He was born... At that time, his parents were traveling performers. Hmm. And they were in Belgium for a circus act or something. So he was born in Belgium, but their home was France. So he was a French Sinto. Right. In those days, in the outskirts... Have you been to Paris? In the, yes. In the northern part, around um, uh, Saint-Ouen, it's in the north of Paris. Apparently, that was like the no-go zone in the days. And right. That's where all the caravans were. And that's where he hung out, where he grew up. Out in the outskirts, outside of the ring, yeah. And he dropped out of, he was illiterate. Hmm. He didn't know how to read or write. And he learned a little bit later on in his life. He became a performer very, very, very early on. And people noticed his talent very, very early on. So he was highly solicited to accompany various singers or play in dance bands, Mm -hmm. dance orchestras. And that's how he got noticed. And people saw that he was a genius very, very, very early on. And so with Django Reinhardt, what happened? Okay, he had an accident at the age mm. of 18 where he lost the use of his two little fingers, the ring finger and the pinky finger. In a fire, right? Yes, yes. And actually in, in, in Sinti, in gypsy culture, Sinti culture, well, gypsy, I think uh, I'll say Sinti because I'm not sure about the others. Okay. They have uh, this thing called like palichi. It's like um, there are a lot of things that are taboo in that culture. Being friends with a doctor is taboo. Like traditionally speaking, if you're friends or if you go to see a doctor, you're kind of like no longer part of the tribe. So there was a huge fear of doctors. So he fled the hospital. Oh, wow. After like when he could, he just fled. And um, he relearned the guitar playing mainly with the thumb, the index finger and the middle finger. The two tiny fingers were kind of fused together. And I I guess he lost some mobility. So... But he was able to push the strings with them to form uh. various chords. So he was still able to use them somewhat. But he couldn't really... Yeah, really use them for other things, yeah. Right. The way we use, I would use it, yeah. Right. So there was that, okay. But I don't think that's where his genius lies. I mean, it's it's very inspiring for sure. But the genius is just like his, his mind is like... He was a musical sponge. So people realized that early on. And then he, he fell in, in love with jazz uh, in the early 30s. And he started playing jazz. He quickly became super, super famous in musical circles, but also in just in, in music in France. He became a superstar. Mm-hmm. And I don't 
I don't have any proof of this, but uh, like I said, Sinti culture is very, very conservative mm. traditionally. And in those days, I think people didn't appreciate the, his elders didn't appreciate what he was doing. That's what some other gypsies told me. I'm not. I don't know if that's true, but they right. did say, "Like, Jang, what are you doing? This weird thing. Like, it's just play normal music, you know? Like, right? It's too out there. Yeah, it's too out there. It's not right. Right. It's but not right. You know what mm. happened? He became super famous, and everyone wanted to be like him. Right. So that's when all the all the Sinti wanted to play like, and they started playing guitar in that style. They wanted to do the same thing as he did. So mm. he gave birth to what people call gypsy jazz even though for me and he himself did not play gypsy he just played music he just, right he said i'm just playing jazz i'm, I'm playing just playing music. Yeah. yeah but he he played jazz in his own way though right yeah how can you describe that for kind of a non-jazz person how what could we listen for or how is it different uh django had three distinct periods to his uh playing four actually before he discovered jazz he was just you know playing the the popular music of the time accompanying people okay and then there's the jazz period so he fell in he discovered jazz through uh louis armstrong that was mm. the moment when i heard django legend. That, that thing happened to me the, th the thing that happened to me happened to him when he heard louis armstrong yeah and he must have been a sponge because he absorbed that vocabulary so in the 30s he was very much playing in that style but also Django had a deep interest in classical music. And in, in Paris in the 1930s, 1920s, it was like super fertile ground for classical music, avant-garde music, like Ravel, Debussy. Django mm -hmm. loved that stuff. So you can hear certain influences from that in his playing, oh, in his wow. improvisations. And then the 1940s, the war happened. So the band that he's famous for is called the Hawk Club of France. Yeah. That's the 1930s thing. The Hawk Club of France continued in the 40s, but it changed completely. It was just completely different formation. And he was getting more and more. And he was really ahead of his time. So anything that was new and intriguing, he, he was very interested in it. So mm. he kept evolving and evolving. Towards the end of his life, he was still playing jazz. But because he also had this these influences from classical, like avant-garde classical music, he was playing jazz unlike anyone else really so when in in mainstream jazz circles people have trouble with django reiner because they don't know how to how to how to categorize him he's right. unique in that way was the hawk club a kind of a big band or no uh, the hawk club uh, of france was an association in france uh run by this guy named charles delaunay and uh he was kind of like i guess de facto manager for django and he's like hey why don't you create this band the hawk club of france mm. So it was, a, it was a quin in the beginning it was a quintet two two rhythm guitars replacing the drums so doing this a doom chak doom chak kind of rhythm oh so no drums no drums but Django did play with drummers but that's that's what it was known for and then there was Stefan Grappelli another very famous French musician Django and a bass player and this was did they play only in Europe or did they ever have a chance to also travel to the states and play no, Django went to the States after the world, uh, the Second World War. He was invited by Duke Ellington. I know. He played with Ellington, right? Yes, yes. Oh, that's crazy. So how did you discover him? I don't think we got yes, to that. Yes, right. I was on a plane ride to... Uh, actually, I discovered him before that. I knew of Django because I, I, I was so obsessed with guitar that I bought guitar magazines every month, like all the different guitar magazines. And the name Django Reinhardt kept popping up. The problem was in those days, YouTube did not did not exist, and the internet was not what it was today. I went to the record store. So I right, this Django Reinhardt. I better check it out. I put on a Django record and a random one, and you can at the at the record store you can just put a they, they let you sample. Okay. And I put on a recording, and I chose the wrong recording. It was a recording where Django wasn't really. 
featured extensively. So it was maybe I think maybe just accompanying, and the sound quality wasn't so good either because it's like old stuff. It's like man, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> this Django guy. Yeah, it was very interesting. So I, I, I you just ignored it. Yeah, and then oh, after that. Uh, there was a movie called I think Swing Kids. It's okay. a, you know that it's a, I've I think heard Christian, of it. I think Christian Bell is in it. Oh, I think so. Christian Bell's a genius. I think so. A very very young Christian Bell, or like a, a very young famous actor. Wow. Okay. It's a, it's a movie about um, uh, the swing music movement during Nazi Germany, like uh, yeah, in the wow. 1930s or during the war. So these people resisted the Nazi regime and they uh, they listened to swing music. One of the guitar players mentioned Django Reinhardt. And was playing it. I love that music. In this film, they mentioned yes. Django. Yeah. <clears throat> and you are right, by the way. So it is, is it a Christian 1993 Bell? American drama film directed by Thomas Carr and starring Christian wow. Bale. Christian Bale is such it. a genius. That's amazing. In pre-World War II Germany, two high school students attempt to be swing kids by night and Hitler youth by day. A decision that acutely impacts their friends and families. What a storyline. Yeah, I mean, it's not a great movie. To okay. Honest, but <laughs> the music was great. I love the music. And in those days, the guitar magazines kept saying, if you want to be a good musician, you, learn to, you need to learn to play jazz. But I didn't know what jazz was because I would go to the record store and buy the guitar magazine. I'd listen to this, listen to this. But jazz nowadays is so vast. There's yeah. a huge, huge difference between, let's say, something called like, I don't know if you know, Mahavishnu Orchestra, yeah. which is like fusion stuff. Yeah, totally. And then Louis Armstrong, like well, exactly, how and Herbie Louis Hancock, Louis? and then, like, everything, everything. It's in between. so different. Like, what? I had no idea. I was so so confused. Even though I had seen this movie Swing Kids, in my mind, I still had I hadn't associated swing with jazz in my right. mind for some reason. I don't know why. So I didn't know that that was jazz. But I just know, wow, this music. I don't know what it's called. <laughs> the, 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 it's obvious from the title, but really, in my mind, from, not coming from music, I just didn't know any better. Like, right. What is this thing? I have no idea. But it was already in the back of my head. That's sound that I, I loved. And then what happened is on a flight, I think, to L.A., I put on just a random movie, and it was called Chocolate. Starring, Chocolate. Starring Johnny Depp. Okay, that one, yes. In that scene, Johnny Depp, he portrays a gypsy. <laughs> he plays guitar in the middle, and he plays minor swing. And it's actually him playing. He's actually a huge Django Reinhardt fan. Oh, wow. Did you, do you know when he was getting, uh, what was it? Was he sued or something? Or when he was, He's been having some problems for sure lately. But he, well, he was in the, in the court, like it was televised. How he yeah, 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 yeah. If you look online on TikTok, there was a thing where he talks about Django Reinhardt. During the court Yeah, it's like, uh, it's like, uh, because one of the complaints from his, is his ex-wife? Exactly. Amber Heard, I like, believe. He's into this like old boring guitar music. <laughs> And like so, the judge is like, or the the prosecutor, whatever the lawyer is asking, are you? Is it true that you're a guitar fan? You play guitar? I think he says like, oh well, I'm not Django Reinhardt, but <laughs> no way. Yeah there's, yeah, there's actually a clip floating around of that. Something That's like that. amazing. So he talks about Django, so he's a huge, huge, huge Django fan. Ooh, I didn't know that. Okay. And anyway, so that scene is like, whoa, this thing is amazing. So I asked a mentor of mine at that time, hey, what is the this uh, melody that I heard in the movie? Oh. That's minor swing, Django Reinhardt. Oh. And if you're into Django Reinhardt, check these out. Like check out these. Go to the record store and get these albums. And that's what I did, and that's where it started. And that's where it started. Yeah. So, how long did it take you to master uh, minor swing? Did you try to kind of emulate it and, and yeah, that was play one of the first things I tried to play. I, I wouldn't use the word master, but I kind of play along to the recording. It didn't take too, too, too long. Huh. I, I, I had to learn it by ear because there was, you can find the sheet music or you could, but I didn't, for some reason I didn't have it, but I, I did it by ear. Oh, so what it was, 
So in, in those days, there were so very few people playing it. And in Montreal, I remember the, the internet was new. So I Google was it Google? I don't think it was Google. It was probably not. It was probably, probably AOL. It was something. No, I, I don't think we used AOL <laughs> in Canada. Oh, in Canada. Was, but I think it might have been Yahoo. Ya- in Yahoo, those days, like Taiwan. <laughs> so I, I Yahooed. <laughs> uh-huh. Django Reinhardt, Montreal. And guess what? There was a site called DjangoMontreal.com. No way, yeah. really? It was this like... Back in the early days. Yeah. It was this guy, uh, my friend Francois Rousseau, who runs that site, much uh, older fellow. He was a, a Django nerd as well. And that website, he collected articles from around the world and like he had the discography yeah. and like anecdotes and all that. It was very fun. Oh, wow. So I was like, wow, there's this guy in Montreal. So I emailed him and asked him if he gave lessons. And... Apparently, he didn't give lessons because he was not a professional musician. He's just, He's just a super fan. Super fan, but he still played. Okay. And he told him, well, you know what? Like, um, I have this uh, weekly gig at a cafe on Sunday afternoons, and you're welcome to just drop by and watch. So I you know what I did. I went every single week. Every single week for several months. I don't know how long, but all the time. And I would go every week, and I would make notes. Oh, this song that he's playing. What's the name of this song? Can you show me the chords? And then I, I would go home and learn the song. And eventually, I was allowed to like just sit in as well, you know, in the back, just discreetly playing a little bit some chords. That's that's how it started. And I really wanted to learn, but there were no resources. Mm. Uh, or if there were resources, they were hard to come by. There was no Amazon or anything. So, or sometimes the resources were not so good. They were done by people who, who superficially only studied the style. So the only thing left to do was to learn directly from records. <laughs> wow, so that's what I did. So you just played the records and play it by ear. And VHS, there was some VHS of like Django. There's only one surviving footage of Django. It's like a three minute clip. And I copied that. I watched his fingers. I watched his right hand, like the picking technique just to emulate it. And I practiced in front of the mirror. No way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Django gave birth to Gypsy Jazz. So the Sinti continued that tradition quietly in their own way, in their in their community. And there was kind of a, res- a slight resurgence in Germany in the 70s and then the 80s. And then there was this documentary that was released in the late 80s called Django Legacy. And this was kind of the Bible for all of us. That was the first video that was somewhat relatively easy, easy to purchase. And um, it's a documentary, 40-minute documentary. And you had all the, the rising stars with the, at that time of, of Gypsy Jazz, mm. all the different players. So I, that was my Bible. I watched it every single day. And in that video, there was a seven-year-old kid, Jimmy Rosenberg, whom I played with last year, actually, at the, the Django Festival. Oh, wow. Cool. So it's a seven-year-old kid. like just Which Django Festival? Uh, the one in France. Oh, okay. The, where, where Django... The original uh, one. Yeah, the, the main one. The Fontainebleau? Or? Yeah, Fontainebleau, exactly. Right. Okay. Well, it used to be in some West Coast, but then there's some politics. So I'm not going to talk about that. Okay. <laughs> well, we can, but um, yes, yes, yes. So I copied all the, the good players from that VHS. I remember watching them, putting it on pause. Then after grabbing my guitar, going in front of the mirror and making sure that my right hands and left hands were in the same positions. That's, wow. how, that's how I learned. You were dedicated. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Hours and hours spent doing that. So... If you were, you know, kind of born now, right, or in this, yes. you know, more recently, how do you think it would kind of affect your trajectory? Do you think it was better in some way to have that kind of old school, you know, lack of resources? Or do you kind of envy, you know, these young kids now who have um, all the resources at their fingertips? I, I can't say that I regret anything. Well, it's, hard, <laughs> it's very hard to say, right? Going through what I did obviously has certain benefits, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, 
But I'll be honest, it <laughs> took me several years to figure out what people can figure out in two months or three months now. So I'm not going to lie about that. Right, 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 and, right. And I, I, like I said, I don't come from a musical environment and no one could tell me anything. So I had to just by my own like passion, my own desire, figure out what was wrong, what was not right and just continue that way. And then uh, because I speak French, I was able to befriend some musicians. So how that happened was uh, the first person to come to Montreal was this guy named Stéphane Rembel. Who's actually he's the composer to a lot of uh, uh, Woody Allen movies. Oh, so he nice. wrote the I think he even might have won a Grammy or something for uh, that movie uh, Midnight in Paris. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, so he's the one who wrote the, the theme song to that. He was one of the first ones to come to Montreal. He's not a he's a French guy, but he he's from the town where Django spent his last years. So he befriended Django's cousins and things like that. So he played. He was the first one that I met who encouraged me, who showed me a few things, and then. Online, I think I found a website of a band, of a gypsy jazz band. They're not super well-known, but it's actual Sinti musicians, gypsy musicians, playing in a way that I really loved. Okay. I really liked it. And so I corresponded with the manager who was the bass player. And he said, I want to buy all your albums. Wow. He sent us, like, I forgot how, even how I paid. There was no PayPal or something. <laughs> right. Might have sent like a check or a something. check in oh, the no, mail. Well, maybe just a like cash in the mail. And then they sent me all the albums and I studied those. No and way. then one day the, the albums were CDs. Yeah, or, CDs, okay, CDs. Okay. One day the bass player emailed me, say, "Hey, there's this person trying to organize a festival in, in Philadelphia, USA. It would be cool if you could come so we could meet." Because he knew I was a huge fan. Yeah. So I said, "Oh man, can I like?" Uh, I was <laughs> such a such a groupie. <laughs> I asked them if I could pick them up at the airport. I'll be like, I'll be your tour guide, man. Because awesome. they don't speak English. Right. I do. I speak English and French. Yeah. So I was kind of like translator, there. basically. So I got in touch with the organizer. It's like, hey, can I? If you want, I can like be their like uh, chauffeur and everything. So that's what I did. I drove ten hours overnight. That's crazy. Pick them up at the airport. Slept at the airport. Picked them up. No took way. Them around, and we became friends. Wow. That's where it started. You were like groupie slash tour manager slash interpreter. Yeah. But also I was learning a lot. Yeah. It was the first time I had like the real deal, like real super good player besides Stefan playing and, and encouraging me, telling me, like showing me things like, hey, you know, you can do things like this. You can do like that. I learned so much. It, I never really took formal uh, lessons, but it was more hanging out. A lot of hanging wow. out. So we became friends. And obviously one, when I went to France, they invited me to their homes and time with them and also there was this guy this uh actually one of the the guys who repopularized the genre in the in the 70s his name is they all, they all have fancy names fapi lafertin f a p y l a f e r t i n he fapi. had lafertin yeah he was like Whoa. one of the the big uh how do you say the protagonist like one of the people who kind of revived this music so he's a okay. he's a he's a he was like Belgian, at the forefront yes Belgian slash Dutch Sinto. Ooh. And he advertised lessons in his caravan in the Netherlands, close mm. to the Belgian border. So I contacted him. I was like, hey, can I take lessons for you? Can I, I have some money saved up? So I, I spent a month learning from him. But the lessons, because a lot of these people are self-taught. They right. learn through community immersion. So they, they can't tell you, oh, it's this scale or that. The lessons with him were not lessons in that way. It was more, I would say... It was very philosophical and mm. it took me a while to process things, but it was it was very, very enjoyable. You said the caravan. Was this in the Sinti community? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So I spent a month with him and I remember he would show me things. And again, no smartphones. So I couldn't record the lessons. So oh. I had to remember. I had to rely on my memory. He's going to show me something to practice this. And I remember 
<laughs> it was I think it was my first solo trip abroad. And And you went just for this too. Yeah. I didn't do any sightseeing. I barely did. I did I did a little bit, but yeah, not so much. Just on the way. Man, I so <laughs> I go home to my hostel and just go by the go to a park and just practice for hours, hours every day. And I was, he was trying to teach me his way of playing the rhythm guitar, this doom check, doom check rhythm. And he kept saying, no, 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 that's not it. But he couldn't really specify what was wrong. And I couldn't hear it myself. I just didn't have the ears to hear. So I was getting like so flustered and frustrated. Oh, what's wrong? I can't hear what's different. So I kept practicing, practicing, practicing. Towards the end of my trip, I was feeling a bit desperate. It's like, oh, I'm about to leave. What if I don't get it? Towards the end of my trip, he said, yeah, that's it. I was like, what? Whoa. And so here's the thing. To this day, I don't know what was different from what I did because <laughs> I didn't have the ears. Right. But I do have the ears now, but I, I don't have any record of this. So I can't hear. But um, Fappy has this kind of nephew, a genius. Like actually, I brought him to Taiwan before too. His name is Charlimberger. T-C-H-A-L-I-M-B-E-R-G-E-R. Charlimberger, who is okay. blind. He's blind. Okay. But he's a genius. He's a musical genius. Huh. And I told the story to to Chow one some years ago, like how I still don't know what I did different, but I learned how to play the rhythm in the way that Fappy taught me. And I showed him the way. And Chow told me, you know, like since I'm blind, if I didn't know you were Dennis, I thought I would have thought you were my uncle. Oh, the way I play that rhythm, amazing! So, <laughs> wow, that's a cool story. But so here's the thing: I was paranoid though. For one year, I was super paranoid. It's like, all right, he says I played it right. But am I going to continue to play it right when I go home? It was always on yeah, my mind. So scared, a year yeah. later, I contacted him. Can I, can I come back to see you again? <laughs> can we test it out? Yeah, yeah. And he said, yeah. yeah. So that's right. All right, cool, cool, cool. <laughs> so next year you went back? I went back. For another month or? No, just okay. a short, like, you know, just, yeah. Just to make sure you're, you're <laughs> tuned up. And apparently, yes. It was still fine. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So how does that work for, you know, non-musical people about playing it by ear? And do you have perfect pitch? And no, I don't. Is that necessary? Obviously not. Um, I think perfect pitch, from what I understand, exists on a spectrum. So there are different degrees of perfect pitch. Okay, perfect and more perfect. And yeah, more and <laughs> right. more and more perfect. Right, right, Some right. people have piano perfect pitch. And I, I, reckon, I witnessed that in college. Like there was a... There was a pianist in uh, one of my classmates because he was able to like when someone played some a note on the keyboard. Oh, that play that it's not an A, it's a whatever right it's a note. And I was like, oh, yeah, perfect pitch. No, no, just on the piano. Oh, on other instruments, he couldn't tell. He couldn't even tell. Yeah, at so all. there's a degree. That's crazy. So I think Django had probably the highest, one of the highest degrees of perfect pitch that exists on the spectrum. Oh man, Django had that. I think perfect pitch is only useful if you know how to make use of it when you've acquired certain skills. In the beginning, it's not not necessarily so useful. Okay. The knowledge is very, very important because I've worked with a lot of perfect pitch people. You would think because they have perfect ears mm. that they could improvise very well, but a lot of them don't know how to improvise to save their lives because they're lacking the knowledge. Perfect pitch is the ability to name the notes that you hear. Right. But in order to improvise, well, you have to hear something worth playing. Exactly. So they don't, they're lacking in that respect. So perfect pitch only becomes super useful. And I've witnessed this. Like when you have the knowledge and the experience, perfect pitch is, it would be such a great skill to have. Right, 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 right. So what about the art of improvising? How important is that for you? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I think what's more important is just to play good music. Mm. But obviously, we spend, as jazz musicians, we do spend a lot of time honing our skills. It's kind of like a language. The same way you would learn a language, there are a lot of uh, analogies that can be made between improv, jazz improvisation or improvisation in general and language acquisition. Mm, yeah. Can you delve into that a bit? Can you elaborate more about yes, the yes. connections? I mean, that's, that's almost something I can talk a lot about. But yeah. 
So where can I start? I want to talk about the parallels between language acquisition and uh, jazz language uh, yeah. acquisition. So, for example, in Japan, English classes are compulsory, but most Japanese can't speak English to save their lives. Definitely. So that's a huge, huge thing. They, they, they learn how to pass tests. Mm -hmm. And there's the same thing with this thing called the JLPT exam, which is the J Japanese language proficiency test, which I've never taken. But I've known people, I know people who've passed the highest level who still can't really speak Japanese. So like I tried to have a conference and they can't. I'm more fluent than them. Right. So but those they are have two, a nice certificate. Yeah, they do. Right. Maybe I'll do it one day, maybe for fun. Right. Um, and I think a lot of jazz improvisation in schools, well, that, that's a huge topic. Like something that I have researched, but I'm not going to go detail but it's kind of taught in that way mm. a lot of the times a lot of people and it's kind of related to taiwan's music history they travel abroad they go to school and they learn the same way the japanese learn english they learn to play jazz and they come don't really mm. right yeah so i think the way i learned japanese and mandarin uh i learned survival in the survival way kind of like a, a child would learn I learned through necessity. Mm. So for Japanese, the first things that I learned how to say were how to go to the convenience store and say this and say that, buy this, can I use car, things like that. So that's how I learned jazz improvisation as well. Actually, before I got into Django, I, I took lessons and they taught me in the, in the music school. So I'm very familiar with it. It's like, all right, here's a chord, chord symbol. And when you see this chord, you apply this formula. And it's just... When I would play, everything was correct, but I could hear that it didn't Just really didn't have sound soul. right. It, yeah. Not the dental soul, but it didn't even sound right. Huh, okay. Yeah, it's kind of like sometimes, you know, when you hear someone speak a language, even you can hear, all right, you've probably studied the language, but you don't know how to speak it like uh, the way that we do. There's, right. a, there's a certain flow, you know, a nativeness to it. It's like stilted. Yeah, stilted and... Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? I would have loved to have taken lessons to learn mm. gypsy jazz, but there were no teachers. So I just realized, hey, you know, I should just probably copy what I hear on recordings. And that's what I did. So it's the same thing. It's the way I learned languages as well. I think that's a nice segue. You talked about there weren't any teachers at that time. I know you have a kind of online shop where you delve into musical education. You teach as well. How important is that for you? And are you kind of passing it down now, you know, teaching young people in that way that you kind of wish there was someone there for you? The thing is, I'm just a big nerd and I, lo I love knowledge. And if anyone wants to hear what I have to share, then I'm happy to share with you. Mm. That's, that's my relationship with teaching. Really. Okay. And I thought a lot about, I'm also very fascinated with how people learn. I'm fascinated by the psychology behind learning. And so it's something I've thought a lot about. And I realized one thing is that as I get older and more experienced with uh, education, I try not to be too dogmatic. So I'm not saying that the ear is the only thing. Of course, like, you know, when you go to school, like uh, a child, when they learn their their mother tongue, of course, it's the same way, right? It's like just survival yeah. for the sake of sort of you just, but then eventually, of course, they go to school, they learn some grammar. That grammar can be very, very nice. Right. So there's nothing wrong with learning the academic way. Nothing wrong at all. The problem is, is if you only learn that way, but you skip the important things, then it's kind of pointless. Exactly. Well, for the, the, the priority needs to be the, the, the necessity. And then everything on top is cherry on top. Everything. Exactly. And that's where the creativity can really bloom. Yes. 
Yeah. Speaking of languages, what about other human languages? I mean, you know, that we speak. And then also in terms of music, are there any other kind of musical languages that you've delved into outside of your, you know, kind of specialized genre? Or some that are difficult or out of the range that you're just kind of curious about? Um, so, uh, human languages. <laughs> I speak human languages. Uh, exactly. You know what? I want to say one thing is that when I was young, I was extremely, extremely shy. Mm. Um, as someone yesterday, actually, I was at a jam session and this young Taiwanese kid, Dennis, how, how are you like able to talk to random strangers? I feel like it's so painful. It's so difficult for me. He, a young guy actually asked me that yesterday because I was talking to everyone okay. <laughs> at the jam <laughs> session at Safo. And I told oh. him, well, actually... When I was your age, I was super, super shy too. Mm. But because of my job, I had to meet people all the time. I have to play in front of people all the time. And sometimes I had to be the one talking to people. I had to teach classrooms. Right. I just got used to it. And it's I a also, necessity. Yeah, it's a necessity. Yeah. And you have to get over it. And also I realized everyone is just as scared as I was. So then that really helped a lot. Yeah, that helps. So it's That's like, like giving a presentation care. and everyone's in their underwear. Just imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah kind, of, kind of the same thing. So now for me, if you put me, like, give me a microphone, I have to speak in front of 50,000 people. There's no problem. It's just, I realized, so that helped a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I told him. Okay. <laughs> I hope it's going to help him. I hope it helps you. Right, if exactly. If you listen to this. Have confidence. You can do it. So I wanted to say that I, uh, because I was extremely shy, mm. I didn't speak so much. And that's why, like, when I speak English, French, or any language, there's kind of a strange accent to the way I speak. And I think it's because I just didn't have the output practice. Right. And even I realized, I, I filmed a lot of YouTube videos and I was listening to myself yesterday and just getting so upset at myself because when I speak English, for example, I tend to absorb syllables. So like, let's say, I don't know, uh, I can't think of a word. Let's say Armageddon. I don't know why that comes up. Yeah. Armageddon. I'll say Armageddon. <laughs> I'll say, so the Armageddon occurred in, I didn't see, I said Armageddon, but the done was super, super soft. So you don't right. even hear it. So huh. And I noticed I have that problem. So does that bleed into the music? Are there some times where, you know, kind of no. the sounds aren't articulated enough? No, or? no, no, no it's not at my all. Speech. It's just my Only speech. Only the human speech. Yeah, so I have that problem I noticed. And sometimes I mispronounce words, even though I know how the intonation, you know, like just the way I, it was for me back in the day. So I'm not a language genius by any stretch of the imagination. All the languages that I speak, and again, again, the only two languages that I think I'm very fluent in, and even then, like I said, I have those <laughs> speech impairment problem, but are English and French. Everything else is kind of like situational. I'm mm. trying to bring Japanese to that level though. That's okay. I live there now. Okay, so I speak English, French. My first language was uh, Taiwanese. Oh, you still speak Taiyu? Yeah, but like I said, because I only spoke with my parents, it's it's at that level. It's probably the level of a four or five-year-old. One thing I realized recently, when it comes to languages, we understand better than we speak. Definitely. Right? Right? Most Sometimes definitely. Sometimes like, oh, what's that word? And someone's like, oh, that was that word. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right? <laughs> so that's the same thing with Taiwanese. Um, and I find that to be true also with Mandarin. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of words. If you ask me how to say that, I can't. But if you say it, oh, yeah, that's what it means. Right, 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 yeah. right. There's some German because a lot of... Uh, the, the Sinti, like I said, they're, they're, right. they're German. German. Yeah. And they spoke to me a lot in German. And I actually, when I was in high school, I did take some German classes that was very deep into my subconscious, but that came out when I started talking to these gypsy musicians again. And because I hung out a lot with them, my level of German understanding is, I wouldn't say it's high, but it's surprisingly high. Okay. Given some that I didn't really study it. Right. Just um, being around that environment. Yes. And then also there was the Sinti language. It's the same thing. They would teach me, hey, this is how we say bread. 
hey, this is how we say. Well, the first words were swear words. I'm not going to say that, but. <laughs> Teach us. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> you want to. It's about to come I, out. I was about to hesitate. Exactly. Uh, and then I asked questions. Hey, how do you say this? How do you say this? And because a lot of these, uh, especially, I don't speak Dutch, right? I mean, I spend a lot of time in the Netherlands, the Netherlands. that I can actually, there's some things, it's, I wouldn't say my skills are zero. They're not great. They're not good by any stretch of them, but it's not zero. And so there's that Sinti language and then Japanese. What is a Sinti language? Is it somehow connected to Indian because, you know, the ancient roots? Of so, the yeah, linguists were able to trace things back to northern India. So specifically with the Sinti dialect, they, they left India some over a thousand years ago. Right. Who knows? And as they migrated, they absorbed, there are a lot of loan words from various, various, various countries. Mm. I can count, for example, one to ten. So, yes, yek, doi, trin, star, punch, shop, efta, okto, enya, and then desh. So, I think. That's very similar to. Efta, okto, enya, I think that's from Greek. I think that's Greek. Yek, doi, trin, I think it's very similar to Slavic languages. But I think actually that might have come from India, actually. Yek, doi, trin. Okay. So, maybe Slavic languages might have been influenced by Indian. And like. Because it's an oral tradition, it's never written down, so things get flipped. Like, you know, like um, in, in the English language, some people, instead of saying, ask a question, they'll say, ask, ask. Yeah. And there's that phenomenon, because um, I can't remember, because it's never written down, some gypsies will say, for the color green, zeneno or zeleno. So I flip the syllables. Oh, zeneno, wow. zeleno. But I think that's oh, from no Slavic way. language. You have to ask some of, uh, one of your... Right, listeners. Mm. One in one of the Slavic language, I think Russian or something. Either Zenelo or Zeleno means green. Oh, that's interesting, huh? Okay, so what about music? Is it all jazz for you, or are you interested in other genres? I, I'm interested in a lot of a uh, wide variety of uh, musical styles. Mm. But when I got into Django Reinhardt, I tried to immerse myself hardcore into it. Like yeah. it was just, I blocked almost everything out and just spent years just doing that. But in reality, I love different things. Okay. What, what do you think it is about Django or maybe about your personality that you are able to, you know, really delve 100% deep into Django? I don't know if, if it's the case. I've never been diagnosed. Maybe I'm <laughs> on the spectrum. Who knows? I know I'm OCD. Mm. Well, I've never been I diagnosed either, but I, I, I can see I, I, anyway. I have OCD traits. Right, right, right. That might be it. Oh, wow. Okay. So it really is a obsessive compulsive yeah. disorder for Django. And it's kind of the same <laughs> thing with me for Japanese. Like uh, people tell me, hey, Dennis, you should watch this new series. And I don't watch anything unless it's in Japanese. It has, okay. I, I try to live, immerse myself as much as possible only yeah. in Japanese. We were texting when you were in Japan and you were talking about just learning it and it's difficult. And then I've seen some of your recent videos on your IG. And uh, it sounds like your Japanese is improving crazy quickly. Yeah, so about Japanese is it improves. I've been taking lessons since the beginning. Well, I never planned to live in Japan. And mm. it's the pandemic that changed everything. It changed everyone's life. And I kind of felt like a bit frustrated that I lost two and a half years of my life because there was the closed borders thing, like the government policy. That was very frustrating. Here in, in Taiwan. The, yeah, everywhere in the world. Yeah. All the government policies. Well, I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> uh, what it was in the beginning, why I started learning Japanese, it was in February of 2018, my friend Kumiko, oh, whom I'm performing with this weekend, by the way. Ooh, nice. In, Where? Uh, Taipei, Yup, it's called Yuppie Cafe or something. It's close by. It's uh, Tongxiao Fushing, Jianzan, Yuppie Cafe, Sunday evening. 
Sunday evening. Okay, yeah, nice. But um, so my friend Kumiko, bass player, she messaged me. I met her at the Taipei Gypsy Jazz Festival like some years earlier. So then we became friends. And she said, "Hey, you want to come to Tokyo? Like, just play a gig or something?" I said, "Oh wow, sure, why not?" And that's when I that, that I fell in love with Japan. When mm. I there, it's like, wow, the music scene here is so awesome. Especially jazz. Yeah, jazz. Japanese are hardcore into they jazz. They are hardcore into that. Yeah. So I saw that. Yeah. And I fell in love with it. Wow. I don't want to just spend my winters in Taiwan. I want to go to Japan too. Yeah. But I also realized that no one could speak English to save their lives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even worse than Taiwan. Yeah. Well, far away. Like, Taiwan's are, well, because I started speaking Mandarin, I almost never used English in Taiwan, in Taiwan anymore. Right. But surprisingly, Taiwanese now are much better than they used to be. But Japan. Uh, but I, no, yeah, forget about it. Just <laughs> totally forget about it. And I told myself, all right, I'm going to, next time I come back, which would be in December of 2000, so I was there in February 2018, I made the decision to go back in December 2018, and it, mm. uh, made the decision to go every single year again. Whenever I would come to Taiwan, I would also go to Japan. Okay. That was the plan. So I started lessons at the end of October of 2018. They were almost daily lessons. It was, or it was relatively serious from the beginning, but the goal was not to be super fluent. The mm. goal was to be able to survive as, yeah. a, as a visitor. Necessity, yeah. So I started lessons then. So I went 2018 and with my super, 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 super basic, so like two months of jazz, it was not much, but it was already it made things a little bit more enjoyable, just a little bit. And then I went back and in December of 2019. So you're, we're getting close to the pandemic. Exactly. By then I had studied for a year and two months. And those year, that one year and two months of almost daily lessons, but again, not super, super serious, but it helped out a lot. Huh. I was like, wow, this is even more. But in that trip, so I spent two and a half months. So from December of 2019 until February 24th of 2020. That's when I came to Taiwan. So yep. two and almost three months in Japan. Living there with one year of uh, lessons in my baggage, behind my back. Spending time those three months in Japan made me progress so much faster. Just being in that environment, hearing it everywhere. At that time, I still didn't read hiragana, katakana, or kanji at all. So wow, it's really? It's, it's still oral. It's all playing by ear, basically. Yeah, yeah. Still, but I still progressed a lot. Then the pandemic happened and I couldn't go back to Japan. I was so oh. frustrated. I did kind of stop lessons for I don't know how long, maybe a number of months. I still studied in my head. Like I still watched Netflix in Japanese, mm. but it kind of, there was like a short pause there. And then I picked it up again. I said, no, no, like I need to continue. This is my, I want to go back to Japan. I continue with the lessons. So when I was finally able to go to Japan was last year. I think that's when we first corresponded. Yeah. Yeah, they finally announced that they were opening the borders, and I applied for a visa to be able to get in. I wasn't sure I was going to get it, but I got it. Oh. And as soon as I, I found out I was approved, they said I had to leave soon because there was a limit for there was a time limit. Oh, so you had to get there soon. Yeah, okay. or else it expired. And so they I just left give everything. You a small window. Yeah, by then I had spent two and a half years in Taiwan. I right. acquired some belongings. I had a residence card. Yeah, yeah, the gold card. I was like, what do I do? <laughs> All this. I asked my friend, can I leave my things here? Like, I was like yeah, 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 sure. So I. Just, Bye-bye, everyone. I, I just left. Bye. <laughs> oh, wow. Really? So then I spent almost three months in Japan from last April of last year until June because I had to go back for work. That's when things opened up for the first time. I went back to North America for the very first time after three years in mm. last year, summer. But in those three months, so like when I first arrived in April of 2022, my Japanese levels, this output thing, the speaking was fairly low but the 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 comprehension level was much higher i wouldn't say high but higher obviously 
But those three months allowed me to progress so much Just because by then I had then what uh, was the three years worth of lessons, mm-hmm. three years of lessons under my belt, and so those three years of lessons, the comprehension thing. During that time, I learned how to read hiragana and katakana. Still okay. not kanji yet. Yeah, and that's when my level exploded, exploded. So actually. Being able to speak what you call nichijou seikatsu nihongo is a daily life Japanese. Yep, exactly. That happened last year. Wow. Yes. Okay. Because I was forced to start to speak it. So yeah. in the beginning, I was being forced. But now it's like, ah, shoukaishimasu.自己紹介紹介紹介紹介紹介紹介紹介紹介紹介紹介紹介紹介紹介紹介紹介紹介紹介紹介紹介紹介紹介紹介紹介紹介紹介紹介紹介紹介紹介紹
it's so weird it's not always the case but it's, it's quite common that you have to pay you have to give your landlord a tip and the tip i forgot what you call that in japanese but it's in the form of maybe one or two months worth of rent and yeah, then, i never had to do that okay then you have a, what is called a guarantor fee that you have to pay if you're a foreigner uh mm. some a lot of these things can be like skipped you can negotiate by like gaikokujin yeah there we go <laughs> <laughs> if you wear a hat that so says. they have all these extra hidden fees that people potentially pay several thousand dollars if not in even the five figures just for the right to move into a house okay so when you move when you sign a lease you better be sure you want to live there i you see really better be sure <laughs> right because if you choose to move out it's the same thing again you pay yeah. that penalty fee so i've been doing monthly lately okay because the reason for that is because before i discovered i, I was gonna live in japan I had planned out my entire 2022 and 2023 calendar. I have work trips to do. Yeah. And it would be a waste to be gone from Japan for two months and pay rent for two months for mm, no reason. Right. So uh, at the end of this year, I'll have done my last planned work trip in November. Okay. I have to come back to Taiwan in October for the Gypsy Jazz Festival. Oh, nice. Yeah. So after that, I will finally decide where I want to settle for at least next two, three years, maybe. Yeah. How long is that visa, the artist visa? It's, it lasts a year, but you Apparently, you can renew every year. I, I don't know if I'll get it again, but I'm going to try to renew. Okay. But if not, I'll or maybe a student visa or something. It doesn't matter. Right. Maybe anyway, I'll, you can. I'll, I'll consider it. Yeah. That's why I haven't settled on a place. And I've been taking advantage of that to go to different places. So the, my criteria are it can't be too cold. So Hokkaido, unfortunately, is out of the question. Okay. <laughs> Have you visited at least? I will. Because will. right now, it's not tourism. It's just right. to see what it's like, the vibe. Mm, so Hokkaido is I not see. in the plans. So obviously Tokyo is Tokyo, but it's super expensive. Mm -hmm. And because right now I'm focusing mainly on learning Japanese, not really working as much. Tokyo might be a bit too expensive. Might be. I mean, yeah. I still consider it. I can. It's probably not the best place to learn, right? It's better to learn the language outside, I think. Yeah. But also Tokyo is where I have the most friends too. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. But so that's why I went to, uh, to Fukuoka and I made a lot of friends there. So then now my heart is torn. I also went to Osaka where I made some friends and I'm going to spend two weeks in Osaka next week to see what it's like. So the more friends I make, the harder it's going to be for me. I know. It's all about yeah, it's very, which friends, you know, win out basically. It's extremely, <laughs> they all do. They're all great. They're, huh. they're all different. They're all really great. And I got to admit the vibe in uh, Kansai and in Kyushu is so wonderful the people are so warm isn't osaka it? there's a kuida ore like the food culture is serious <laughs> there <laughs> but the funny thing is a lot of people in tokyo warn me not to go to osaka osaka and also you know because kansai is very famous for their comedy yeah, yeah. they have a very yeah, yeah. very yeah. amazing sense of humor <laughs> yeah and it can be hard for you know like tokyo, tokyo people, people. <laughs> but here's the thing uh i don't know if it's it's uh, something i want to talk about but it's that it means you should talk about it yeah, but it's, it could be controversial because I started thinking about how important is it to understand history and culture behind the things that you're interested in. For example, jazz. Mm. Now, obviously, jazz, jazz has been in Japan for over 100 years. Since the beginning of jazz history in America, practically, right. it has existed in Japan as well. But then you go to Tokyo and you look at the jazz community and you look at the jazz community in America or Europe, it's a completely different culture, vibe. It, it's not a judgment, but like... When I think of jazz, I think of this community spirit that doesn't really exist in Tokyo. Huh. And I ask a lot of people, how do you feel about Tokyo's jazz? And like, right. they, well, everyone's great. They're great players. But like the, the person who talks to them is, can be very, very difficult. Mm. Because maybe of this like super meiwaku kakenai, like don't right. cause trouble to other yep. people. Unless you're close to them, they won't talk to you. It's like super, it's kind of... Insular. 
yeah, it's weird. But then you go to Osaka, then you're going to find that vibe. Exactly. You have that vibe. And also in Kyushu as well. Right. With no disrespect intended towards Tokyo people, but <laughs> the people in Osaka are much closer to the vibe, the jazz vibe right. of America and Europe than the Tokyo people. But the Tokyo people don't go there. Yeah, exactly. So that's my question. How important is it to also catch the vibe? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I really think that that's part of it as well. Like if a, if a good comedy scene can, you know, blossom in a city, I think it just says a lot about kind of their limits or their possibilities in terms of how far they can go creatively and they love food. And yeah, I didn't know this about the jazz scene, but that's super fascinating. It makes a lot of sense to me. You know, especially with gypsy jazz, because I'm very familiar with gypsy culture. Yeah. And actually gypsy jazz is super popular in Japan. Oh, is it? Yes. But in Tokyo, there are so, I mean, not but a lot of the way the Japanese play gypsy jazz, they don't have any understanding of this gypsy culture because it's so foreign to them. Right. They have a fascination with it, but they don't have an understanding of the culture. Exactly. There was actually a documentary that was made. It's called Django Mania. I'm still trying to find it because... Django what? Django Mania. Okay. It's made by this super controversial uh, director. In well, Japan, a Japanese documentary. No, 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 no. Oh, it's okay. an international documentary. Okay. It was released some like 15. I don't know. You have to look at it. Django okay. Mania, it's called. Mm. And I'm trying to find a copy of this. I want to watch it again. It aired on TV. And um, the premise behind this video is to actually make fun of Django fans. It's to insult them. But he does it covertly. It doesn't like... So the people he's interviewing don't really realize they're being made fun of. And you know what? He traveled it's to like Japan. Borat. Kind of. He traveled <laughs> to Japan. But I, I watched this. When was this released? 2005. It's a 56 minute. Oh my minute, gosh. It's one word, by the way, everyone. Django Mania. You can find it on IMDB. I want to watch it again because I watched it then. Uh-huh. So there's my memory. like, But he went to Japan and made fun of the Japanese Django scene. Oh, that. And he completely insulted him, but the Japanese didn't realize. And he basically got, from what I remember, I could be wrong. I want to watch it again. I think he got the Japanese to basically say, we love gypsy jazz, but gypsies are not welcome in Japan. Oh, but not 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 directly <laughs> like that but it was kind of like an insinuation it's so it's literally like borat <laughs> and and I, when wow. i live in japan i do notice that to be true it's like wow the way japanese are doing things like it's so incompatible with gypsy culture right. but they're so fascinated with it so there's this weird thing for yeah. me it's very difficult to talk about exactly you know? But I think it's so Japanese, though. It's very common in the <laughs> culture is to get very into something, but adopt it with a very specific Japanese flavor. The thing is, in Japan, they also okay, so it's a lot of factions mm. into gypsy jazz. And they're like, you don't play the real gypsy jazz. I play the real jazz. This oh. person, and to me, to be honest, as far as culture is concerned, like just under, a lot of them play very well, but none of them understand the culture they can't how can they yeah they don't exactly they never spent time there yeah right right maybe right, they right, met right. one or two person then they think they do but to be honest they don't so that's something that i'm very fa i'm very fascinated by sociology and psychology mm -hmm. in that respect yeah i big think time. i think about it all the time i kind of want to talk to them but it's so sensitive you know <laughs> exactly. like especially these twitter spats or like online spats you don't play the real thing i do and all that stuff it's oh. there's a south park episode i don't know if you watch south park yep. <laughs> where it's in the future there's no religion anymore yep. there's only atheism but they they fight over who has the right atheism <laughs> that's brilliant it's perfect yeah exactly huh so are you performing in japan at all are uh, a little bit people have invited me but i'm really just focusing on studying japanese okay just immersing in the culture yeah and meeting good people and okay yes so 
can we segue maybe back to here, which yes. is Taiwan? Mm -hmm. What do you think about the Taiwan music scene? Um, that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you because you have a lot of experience here. You obviously have some roots as well here. I think you were also performing and uh, you've had quite a few performances here. How are your feelings about the Taiwan music scene? It's very, very complicated. And Taiwan, and maybe not just music, just in general, is in a state of transition, I think. Because Taiwan only opened up in the past... 35 years, right? Yeah. Towards the end of the 80s. Yep, 35, 35 yeah, exactly. 35, roughly 35 years. Yep. And I've been trying to do some research on my own, but it's it's hard. It's hard to find this information to talk to people, talking to expats, talking to locals. From what I understand, I would definitely welcome any kind of correction. But from what I've been able to gather is that Taiwan's quote-unquote uh, music scene as it exists right now is maybe less... It started when things opened up. Of course, there was music before, but it was very, it was like super commercial, like super, very like uh, narrow. Yeah, Super exactly. narrow. Either because it had to be more or less government sanctioned. Yes. So classical music, you know, and pop music, mm -hmm. really. Anything else, I think it was played like jazz or whatever, was played by Filipinos and Americans, from mm -hmm. what I understood. Mm -hmm. And I welcome corrections. And then... Taiwan opened up. And I remember when actually when I came like in the 2000s or so, I saw we'd go to hotels and there were Filipino musicians playing music. Oh, wow. There was That's a lot of that. Okay. Yeah. If, if, you, if you ever find out more, I want people to tell me. Yeah. Because I'm very yeah. fascinated. So I did notice that. There were a lot of Filipinos. Mm. Now I don't see them anymore. Right. I, uh, right. I, and I asked a few people, what, what happened? Apparently when Taiwan opened up, I guess people had disposable income or something. They send their kids abroad to America, to Europe, where they can study things like music and not, you know, like uh, mm -hmm. science or whatever. Exactly. So that's when the local musicians really started like, all right, music is a viable career option, even though it's not. But, right. <laughs> <laughs> but they would come back, they would study, and they would come back. And I don't know who instigated this and how true this is, but there was a crackdown on foreigner musicians. Oh. In the early 2000s, like, we don't need you anymore. Get the hell out of our country. Oh, damn. Okay. Yeah, you're taking our jobs. They took our jobs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, really? So I, 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 I would really like to know more about that, yeah. how true that is and how exaggerated it might be. But like, mm. yeah, but that might explain why all the, the, all the foreigner, like Filipino, Southeast Asian, disappeared oh, from the music I scene. Oh, I see. Okay. Huh. I, I, I'd like to know. Taiwan's music scene is less than 30 years old. And jazz, from what I understand, of course, people played jazz before, but it was like super minority thing. But the way it exists as it is right now, I'm told that it started with a couple in Taiwan, a violinist and a pianist whom I've never met. They, they traveled to Belgium to study at the Royal Conservatory there. Apparently, because there is no language proficiency test. So basically, you can just go there and just study and get a diploma. Right. Uh, we talked about that earlier. Exactly. That kind of thing. <laughs> and they went there, had a good time, came back and started the first jazz camp. And that's where a lot of like uh, quote unquote pioneers of Taiwan's jazz scene come from. It comes from that. But uh, I want to preface things by saying that actually I've taught, I've given workshops and lectures all over, well, not all over, but different, different countries, different cultures. Mm. And I have to say that East Asians, like Taiwan, Japan, Hong Kong, the way people learn is so impressive. They learn on average much faster than everyone else. I've taught workshops in Europe and North America where it's so like, there is no average. Some people learn fast. Some people, they learn unbelievably slow. Like, right. it's on, but on average, people are crazy fast in East Asia. Hmm. I don't know. It's the education system. I don't know what it is, what it is. But also people tend to give up really quickly. 
Oh, that's in Taiwan. In Taiwan. In Taiwan, especially. Okay. And I've been told from a lot of Taiwanese, even I've been like uh, not working, but hanging out with this uh, singer Huai Te. It's uh, like an up and coming. She, I think she won a golden melody. Like, oh, nice. Uh, she lives around the corner, actually. But we've been hanging a lot, and she's been telling me, not her, but she's the most recent one to tell me, like, you know, I lack a lot of confidence because of the education system. We yes. were taught fear, obedience above all else. Oh wow. And. Uh, I guess she kind of sought me out because she sees my Facebook where I'm always posting about like, <laughs> I'm so anti-authority. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. like, so a lot of people are fascinated by what I have to say about that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, but a lot of times, like, yeah, you know, with the way we grew up, we're, we're so afraid, you know? And so one thing I noticed when I taught workshops in Taiwan, sometimes I'd ask people, I'd play two different examples and ask, what are your thoughts? Just your honest thoughts. There is no right answer, but people are afraid of giving the wrong. <sighs> exactly. So, hundred percent. There is that, and I think what people want is kind of an escape from that world, and they want the quote unquote easy way out. It's also an island. People have like a laid back attitude. So people send their kids abroad to study music in a superficial way. They study music in a superficial way, artificial way, and they come back and they teach it to their students that way. It, what's cool about the music school system? It's like do step one, do step two, do step the three. SOP. It's very clear. Yes, you have. Graduate, you are now officially... Congratulations, yes. here's your shiny diploma. There we go. And that's how it is. I've met people who majored in French in Taiwan, and I tried to speak to them in French, and they... they There's n- and they'll freak yeah. out. Yeah, like on their, on their Facebook, it says, language is spoken. French, oh, tu parles français. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> you know? Oh, la, la. <laughs> and um, so there is that phenomenon. And so there's... <laughs> There's this guy, Lin Weishan, who's probably the most legitimate. Um, no, I don't want to go into that. You know, art can, anything can be art. So I'm, I'm not mm. going to, there's the, the subjective nature of art. I'm never going to argue against that. Mm. What people like, I'm not. But there's also an objective side to art as well. Mm-hmm. And Weishan is someone who actually learned music the way I learned as well. He was in New York. He was a working musician, learned music on the streets, playing with the best musicians for a number of years. Ooh. Like, if there's someone who really understands, who's lived jazz history, it's Lin Weisen. He's here now. In yeah, Taiwan. he's here. Yeah, yeah. He plays, but people don't like him here. Well, they respect him, but they, they see him as a grumpy person because he's the only one saying the things that I'm saying as a right. local. And I've, I've seen his YouTube. He has like rants on YouTube channel. <laughs> and people's like, if you don't like Taiwan, just go back to America. Like, uh, <laughs> right, of course. And um, saying all these things that are actually really, really true, but he's the only one saying it. So when you're the only one saying the true thing, but everyone is on the opposite, you look like an idiot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and yeah. so it's it's so surreal to me. And I've you know I've, I've ranted a lot on Facebook as well. I've received so many private messages from musicians. Dennis, thank you so much for saying what I don't dare to say. Because if I say that in Taiwan, I would lose a lot of work opportunities. Right. They are so afraid. And so there's this thing. People want the easy way out. They don't want to really get into the... The really, nitty gritty. Yes. And the best example I can give is especially with Gypsy Jazz. There were, over the years, a lot of people who got interested in Gypsy Jazz. Practically everyone gave up. And I hope the new two new ones who started recently, I hope they don't give up. I don't want them to give up. I hope they continue. Oh. But a lot of them give up. You know why? Gypsy Jazz can't be studied in musical. There's no program. But now they've invented a program. And the history of jazz education is also fascinating. It's too long for this, this mm, podcast. Okay, but next episode. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's this. It's an SOP thing, standard. Yeah, you know. yep, standard operating procedure. But like, as it's it's kind of like English in Japan. Mm-hmm. It's exactly the same thing. So just because you pass that doesn't mean anything. And so 
they do that and it's it's so cool because it's you just follow the steps and you and that's how they want to learn yeah so they think they've they've made it so people who do that sometimes they've come to me for asking for a gypsy jazz but all right do you do this do you practice this way i show them you know like you gotta spend hours loving it like mm -hmm. listening to this, like, and they all give up it's too hard yeah i don't want to do that i just want to know what formulas i have to apply there, there's no formula you got to live it 100 percent and that's also why when people say oh dennis speaks japanese i want to correct people i don't speak you know i obviously I, I have skills in japanese the day i speak japanese is the day i can converse about almost anything mm. this is the same way i can do i can go to the doctors and explain what's wrong with my arm i can mm. go to the garage and say what's wrong with my car that's the day i will say i speak japanese until right. then i'm still studying i'm still learning i'm a student yeah i love it um, so I think you're also well known for your activism in terms of music here. Uh, you mentioned in a, in a post in our gold card chat, you said in Taiwan, I'm more involved with change and activism in the music industry, change with quotes over it yes. and activism in the music industry than actual work. I started a protest that was successful in getting musicians the right to bring certain instruments on board the MRT. The policy <laughs> has changed, but there is still lots of room for improvement. Yes. Indeed. So, yeah. Can you talk about that? So that when was I was stuck in Taiwan, I realized there was no work. For, I, mean, I could work, but the money was so pitiful. Like, yeah. I didn't. I actually, I, I make a lot of money from passive income. I'm lucky in that way. I got into the passive income game through music education long, long time ago. So mm. during the pandemic, it helped out. So I didn't have to make money here. The wages are so low that I just like, no, I, I'm not going to work, man. Why? It's a perennial problem for yeah. gold carters. Yeah, 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 yeah right. Yep. I, I heard about that. Yep. I made friends with a lot of gold carters who had the same issue. Yep. Um, so instead, I just spent a lot of time with anyone actually who were curious about learning. I spent time with them. We hung out. We played a lot. There are some people who, you know, there's one particular person who was the first one to actually message me, hey, can I hang out with you? Like, uh, show me some things, you know? Mm. And I didn't want to take their money. Because mm. I could, to be honest, not, most people probably couldn't afford my usual rates. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, it's like, whatever. But just like buy me like a lunch or whatever. Let's hang right. out. Let's play together. There was this person that kind of people didn't respect in the beginning because oh, this person's not really good. But man, this person has surpassed so many musicians. Really? Two, three years. He believed what I, my advice, the advice, that, the same advice that Lin Wei-sun would give others. Like, get into it. Let's hang out together. Let's play a lot. Yeah. Because in culture. Taiwan... I think especially when it comes to language or music, it's not enough to have just that one private teacher. But in Taiwan, it's like you have that one pri private teacher who reigns supreme above all else. No, the entire community is your teacher. And so I said, let's hang out together. Go, let's go out. Let's go jam. Let's go. So this person progressed significantly. There are a number of young people who progressed a lot like that by just doing that simple thing. Mm. So there was that. That's how I was kind of involved. And then there was the protest. I didn't know this was an issue. So uh, for those of you who've been to Tokyo, it is unbelievably congested. <laughs> and the trains, a lot of them are much smaller than the trains in Taiwan. Yeah, they have dedicated train pusher yes. owners. <laughs> Yet they are able to bring the double bass to, in Tokyo. Of course, they, they're very smart about it. Like a person who has a double, they will wait. They will go, they will board the train outside of peak times. That's logical. Right. Taiwan's MRT is significantly wider, yet it's forbidden. And I witnessed that the first time with my Japanese friend. She tried to bring the bass. I was like, what are you doing? You can't do that. Why not? Right. It's forbidden. It's my instrument. Yeah. It's like, but what, what's, what about that person bringing a bike? It's actually just as cumbersome. Oh, yeah. Bikes are, bikes the bike are allowed, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Bikes are allowed. Surfboards are I don't remember. Right. 
uh, that made no sense. And then the second time that happened was with my friend trying to bring a vase. And I, I'm aware, like I'm a person, I, I believe in mei waku kake nai, don't cause trouble. Right. So I specifically sought out a time when there was no one taking the MRT. It was practically empty. Mm. So you can't go in. It's going to bother other people. There's no one around us. It's like, yeah, well, you can't go in. And she was just so like adamant. And that pissed me off. I said, you know who I am? It's like, no, I'm, uh, I'm, <laughs> I said, I'm Tsang Ing-wen's son. <laughs> you said that? <laughs> I said really? that. It's like, Tsang Ing-wen doesn't have a son. Like, <laughs> I was just like messing with her. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> I wish I had that on. I was, just, like, I was just messing with her. That's amazing. And then I said, okay, but we're only just going two stops. Then walk there. But like, uh, Wow. This 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 kind of like Did you get stopped at the gate or yeah, was at the this, gate as oh, we're going in? Damn. But it's just the way that this obedience thing, this this want to like enforce a rule for the sake of enforcing. And I've experienced that so many times in Taiwan. Yes. It gets to me, you it's know. SOP still. Because yeah. it's how they were raised. Yes. Obedience. 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 Above and all else. Pie. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, it's like, all right, I got so royally pissed off. Mm. I went home. I told my friend. Like, because you my called Tsai and <laughs> That was funny. Eh? I, I like to mess mom. with people like mom. that. <laughs> yeah, mom. Fix this Mom. <laughs> Mommy. But, <laughs> but uh, so the thing is, I wish I was uh, fluent in Chinese. Because if I were, right. I would spend more time here. I would do a lot of, th- I would be someone that everyone hates. Because I would be a loudmouth. <laughs> As I'm someone who, if something's not right, I'm going to try to fix it. Mm-hmm. There's, no, there's not going to be like any bureaucracy that's going to stop me. I'm just going to, why fix it? No, because you have to do this first. No, you just have to do this and do exactly. it. Exactly. But yeah. no, you can't. Why? Is there an invisible like hand preventing me? Oh, look, I did it. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like the timeout chair. It's like, what is this timeout chair? It means you can't get up. Well, I just got up. <laughs> <laughs> you bad boy, you. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> but... Unfortunately, I don't. So what I did, it affected me so much that I, I insisted on doing something about it. Mm. So I asked my my ex, Jenny. Mm. I, I wrote a big text in English, but it was very polite. Okay. And I asked her, can you translate to Chinese? Then I asked my friend whose uh, girlfriend was a graphic artist. She made like a graph, a flow chart and everything. I posted it on social media. I asked all, I implored the Taiwan music community to share it all over. And it got shared all over social media. Then one musician said, hey, I'm in contact with a politician who's willing to help us out. So this politician, obviously she's doing it for political oh, points. No, but no whatever. way, really? <laughs> yeah, but you know, whatever. We take... Yeah, we take what we can get. We get. Exactly. So she, uh, she staged like this televised appearance in front of a metro, I which station it was. So we all showed up there. We had a, gave a speech. It was shared all over the news. I think it was October 2021. Okay. Around then. Okay. <laughs> I saw the comments. If you don't like Taiwan, go back to your home, Canada. Oh, the same comments the came same, out. All these like super co- like like what if someone puts a gun inside the 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 the, the gig bag? Oh, they went all I the way there. I can put a gun anywhere. <laughs> That's if insane. I want to bring a gun, I want to bring a gun. <laughs> a gun the size of a double base. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, <laughs> first of all, there are not many double bases in Taiwan. Yeah, and it's their livelihood, right? It's these yeah, like yeah, yeah. young so, students or yeah, yeah, passionate yeah. people in music. And I, that's a very important instrument in music, uh, actually. Yeah. But the fact that you can bring it on board in Tokyo, in Montreal, in Paris, there's actually something happening also with uh, the bullet train in in France. There, there's a protest. It's actually not allowed in. It's allowed in the metro in Paris, but not in the, the high speed rail. So there's they stage similar protests. Oh wow! Okay. And good for them. Yeah. But uh, yes, we were successful. No way. We changed the policy, and now it's funny. I have a picture of this. <laughs> in, in certain stations, it says. 
double bases must like they actually there's a sign that says double bases here or something like that. Oh, I have no a picture way. somewhere on my phone. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yes, but there's a caveat. Okay. There are a lot of certain restrictions. So. I think they need to scrap those restrictions. Um, like size, like specific size restrictions? There's specific conditions, like doing mm. this time, this while they do like this. It's still a little bit too strict. And um, mm. so the battle is not over. But I can't continue that. They, they, people have to do it. So here's the thing. Mm. MRT has been around for over 25 years. So right. I don't remember exactly how long. Mm-hmm. In those years, no one has thought of doing what I did. I, I came up with that idea in one second. Right. Like as soon as I saw that, I was like, screw this shit. I'm gonna do something I'm angry. about it. Yeah. And I, I had the plan sorted out in my head. We're gonna do it like this. We're gonna solicit the aid of the entire community. So it's not that uh, hard. I don't wanna. People in Taiwan are very, very smart. Of course, mm. they're very, very talented. Mm-hmm. And creativity exists within a bubble. But outside of the world, it's very difficult for them to think creatively. Right. But that's how I was able to think of this. It's so obvious to me, but it was not obvious to them. There are a lot of things like this. And last week, I started kind of like a serious, quote unquote, jam session in Taiwan. Mm. It was a really I saw, great I saw success. that. I wanted to come. A lot of fun. people thanked me. And even one non-musician customer asked me, hey, Dennis, something was very different. It was super enjoyable compared to the others. And what's Because I have all these rules in place to make sure that there's a certain musical standard. Even mm. if you're a beginner. The way it works in other jam sessions is it's just chaos reigns because no yeah. one knows anything. No exactly. one is aware. There's no empathy. And that's what exactly what was so chaotic. I saw like people like getting pissed off yesterday. Hmm. But so I, I posted about this, like Taiwan's first serious quote unquote jam session. And there are going to be some rules and people obviously got pissed off. Who am I to create like a serious jam session? Who am I to create these rules? Music should be free, you know, all that stuff. But my thing proved out to be correct. Your it understanding of Taiwan. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, what happened? Uh, this was at the Blue, Blue, Note, Note, Blue Note in Taipei. Yeah, right. I don't live in Taiwan, but I created, I planted that seed. I see someone should have planted that seed early on. Mm. I just, I want to do this. Let's do this for the community. Right. So super successful, but they have to continue. Someone has to take over. Unfortunately, there are not many people who can take over that role because it requires a lot of understanding of different things. Yeah. But a lot of people just don't understand the music or the people or things like that. A lot of people think musicians are magicians, like they can do everything. Just because someone is a vet doesn't mean they can do like uh, brain surgery. Or So that's often what happens on stage. Like a, a beginner says, I want to play this song. But actually, this song requires a certain set of skills that a lot of players don't. And they get pissed off because people say no. Mm. Whereas what happened with my session was like, all right, you want to play this? Well, first, there's a list. You cannot play complicated songs. You can choose from these songs because they focus on the basics. And you write them in advance what you want to play. Whereas in the current system in Taiwan, it's like, all right, the host goes, all right, you, 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 you come on stage and sort it out among yourselves. I see. (laughs) In Taiwan, that's not a good thing. No, really not a good thing. (laughs) Yeah. And for me, it's, you write down in advance, and then I see the list. All right, this person. And so the last week, there was one beginner. She chose a song that probably did, is not a jazz song, but I was kind of nice. Like, do you want to play? Oh, I'm a bit shy. I'm never really jazz. You know, I have fun. Y'all. I'll. So she wrote down this song, Mercy, Mercy. It's a cool song. It's a mm. good song, but it's, it's not a jazz tune. Right. And I said, all right, what am I going to do here? Uh, all right, first of all, I'm going to keep it short. Give her a chance to shine on the day. Make her happy. Yep. I'm going to pair her with the host band because the host band is the most experienced. So mm. they're going to work with her. And there's actually happened my friend Ben Holt, who's uh, probably someone you should interview. He just got a gold card. Oh, nice. A new gold card. All right. Him. Introduce us. Yes. He's playing with a lot of pop stars. You should talk to him. Okay. Um, he comes from the gospel background. He Ooh. plays jazz, but also got, well, mercy, mercy, right up. Per- yeah, that's true. Ben, please <laughs> play with her. Play just like make it. 
And so they went on stage knowing what they were going to play in advance. As a complete beginner, she sounded great because she was in the right environment. Yeah. Whereas in Taiwan, I've been in jam sessions, popular jam sessions, where I walk up on stage. Obviously, I'm more experienced than most people here. Mm. And I'll often let the beginner, the others choose. What do you want to play? Let's play. I'll adapt to you. So there was one time there was a complete beginner. I've never really played jazz before. So I just, okay, we should play this tune because you can kind of like fake your way through it. It will be easy. Uh, but before I said that, there was another person on stage and I asked them, what do you want to play? And that person said he chose one of the hardest jazz songs ever in existence. And I was like, did you just hear like what she said? She's never played jazz before. Right. The, the connection is not made. Uh, oh, what is the hardest one of it's the not, hardest? It's not one of the it's, it's called Moments Noticed by uh, John Coltrane. Oh, Coltrane. Yeah. It's a song that has like That's... requires. Well, for the person who called it, I know they, they couldn't play it either. Because I'll tell you why. I mean, who can play the train? <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a very difficult song. But the reason Taiwan's jazz community is obsessed with complexity, because actually, mm. I could be wrong about the, my, it's kind of my opinion, my uh, theory. When, when I was going to music school in the early 2000s in the classical program, but I know right. I still followed what was happening in the jazz department. And what was super trendy in those days in the early 2000s was like abstract jazz, like complex jazz. Okay. That was super, super trendy. Hmm. That was around the time when Taiwanese started going to music schools. Oh, so I they see. got their so first they, exposure to, to they music. They rode on was, that wave, basically. They rode on that one. They brought it back to Taiwan. And so the younger generation sees what their elders are doing. Oh, they're, this is the real jazz. I have to play the complex music. Because if I don't play complex music, people will not respect me. They actually believe that. People told me, I told them, I've told people, hey man, you need to play super simple because what you're doing is, first of all, it doesn't even sound because you're not doing well. You should try <laughs> right. to focus on the simple. But people won't respect me. It's like, it's, so it's, sad. it's because it's almost like a religion. It's hard yeah. to convince someone. And it's worrying about what everyone else in that community thinks. Yeah, right? It's such a deep belief in this. Yeah. And you have this guy, Wei Sun, saying like, but everyone ignores Wei Sun. It's just unbelievable. Wei Shen sounds like a god. He is. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, and here's the thing. You know, that story I told you about when I first started Gypsy Jazz, I used to go to see like amateurs play. Right. Because you know, I didn't know any better. I mean, it doesn't matter. Yeah. They're amateurs, but they know more than me. I, I know nothing. So I went to see them. But here you have Wei Shen playing regularly and the music community is the people who should would benefit i actually go went to see wayson play like three times already while i was here oh, man. just to watch it's like wow i learned something but no one does that because they only have that one teacher and that one teacher reigns supreme above all else right so there's a lot of incompetency like it's so difficult to talk about because to be honest first of all i actually hate confrontation as well mm. it's it's not pleasant right i hate elitism gatekeeping mm. that's so bad like, mm. i want everyone to feel welcome really. yeah but the way things evolved, it evolved this way because a lot of things left unchecked. Yeah. And I've worked with a lot of the best musicians in Taiwan. Well, best, I mean best, like quote unquote, like mm -hmm. most famous. A number of times I've had to like just shake my, like I have to keep, keep it bottled. That's why I had to leave. It's just too much for me. Too much. Because I worked with one of the most solicited musicians and I would try to them like, no, this song should be a little bit different. We maybe have to change the chords a little bit. And I tried to teach them by ear, like, but it's, it's super easy. It's the most elementary thing. They couldn't get it. They couldn't get it. Like for 20, 30 seconds, I tried to do it. It wasn't worth 30 seconds is a long time. Right. Yeah, that's <laughs> it true. It should be one second. <laughs> and I said, do you want me to write it down for you? All right, I wrote it down. And they know what they said. Dennis, you're a genius. No, I'm not. This is like the most elementary, elementary skill there is because music schools don't teach a lot of music it's not that the music schools are bad themselves because the music schools a lot of them assume you already know the basics right so then they're going to teach it's higher education <laughs> exactly 
That's what it's called. <laughs> That's what it's called. So I, I don't necessarily blame the that school. So it is so weird in that way. But you know, as you know, Taiwan or Asia, East Asia, tremendously respects people who went abroad. Yes, exactly. And there's also foreigner worship here. Yep. Actually, yesterday, there's a, a foreigner, a Taiwanese uh, American, mm. complained that he was discriminated. He lost a gig because the, the, the band leader, who was white, couldn't do the festival due to health issues. So they lost the gig because they needed the, the gig specified they need to be a, a white, white, person. white or black, a visible, a visible minority, like white, black, as long as they didn't look Asian. In the front. And you know, it's a new Taipei City-sponsored jazz festival. Oh, no way. There's discrimination at that level. Wow. So... The same thing happened to me. I was supposed to teach a workshop. I, I think it was on a university in Kaohsiung, like some before the pandemic. Mm. And I think it was with a French a musician from France. I was the one who was actually going to do the teaching. Mm. But it was it was advertised as us together. And the, the white person was just going to be like, just the white. Right. But because there was some issue, he couldn't make it. It got canceled. Uh, listen, <laughs> I want to be very clear. I don't blame this on foreigners. I don't blame white people, black people, nothing of this. Right. Because what I'm complaining about is there is a worship. There's foreigner worship, but it's selective because white, black people are also discriminated against at the institutional level when it suits the purpose. Mm -hmm. So that it's this hypocritical attitude that I really, really despise. Yeah. You know, I completely despise this. But even so at the institutional level, this exists. But it, it seeps down into the community level. So people worship foreigners. Because you're a foreigner, you get propped up to godhood status. This is very difficult for me to say. Because a lot of people come to Taiwan. If you come to Taiwan to seek out a music career, it's because you couldn't make it back home. And I know a lot of people like, it was too hard back home. And they came here. Mm -hmm. And some of them are gods. And they, they actually believe it. So uh, it's so hard to talk about. Really, uh. I hate confrontation. But when I, I also want to say one thing. I do not think of myself as a master musician at all. I'm just a comp I'm just your average competent musician. No more, no less. That's it. I'm not a god, really, really. Mm. Uh, but the basics are not matched in Taiwan. And so there are all these people just on account of being either black or white are automatically propped up. They play Elevated. with pop stars and everything because mm -hmm. of that. And the other day I went to a jam session. All the young people were freaking out because this foreigner showed up and uh, like, oh my God, this person is here. I can't believe it. I pull all the cameras, they're filming everything. And I'm on stage with this person. I'm not going to say the gender. Nice person. <laughs> don't know. It's like, and I say, hey, um, okay, this person wants to play this song. Do you know it? And they said, no, I don't know. I'll just follow. I'll play by feel. It's like, okay, you want to talk about uh, neuroscience. Do you know anything about neuroscience? Oh, you know. No, just, <laughs> we'll just wing it. Yeah. Oh my God. And just as I expected, it was a train wreck. But Ooh. the people don't have the ears to hear it oh. because they, what they see on stage is someone being like, like just super like, uh, you can't see me on because uh, of the, right. the mic. But, but moving around, like it's, it's, it looks, it, I got to admit, visually it is, for someone who doesn't know, it looks really, really it looks cool. cool. It does look cool. <laughs> <laughs> but orally, it's nonsense. Yeah, you, I could oh, tell wow. it's complete, complete nonsense. And, you know, it's kind of, uh, do you speak French? No. No. But if I spoke to you in French, I said random words. La crème de... de <laughs> Table the blah 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 blah. You know, <laughs> I can't even do it. <laughs> it know, makes no to. sense. It makes, but you would believe me. Oh, right, right, wow, right. Dennis wow. is so good at French. <laughs> it's complete BS. So actually, Wei Sen went to the jam session yesterday and also three weeks ago for the first time, mm. and no one respected me. No one's like, and I was sitting there with Wei Sen and he was watching. <laughs> he's so grumpy, but I like him. I love him. He's a great guy, but I can understand why he's so grumpy. But he was complaining. <laughs> 
Dennis, what's going on? How can pe- how can people allow this? Can they hear that no one's together, like rhythmically not together right. at all? Like, how could this be acceptable? And I told Wayson, look around you. Everyone is filming. Everyone is so into it. Right. Because there's the visual aspect too. You know, like it's it looks cool. It does look cool. I'm mm. not going to lie. But those who can hear, they can hear that it's nonsense. But because it's this way, it, it shouldn't change. You know, I understand that it's hard to run a business in Taiwan, anywhere mm. in the world, let alone that. But <laughs> they found a formula that works. Right. Let them keep it. Let them keep it. And that's why I want to start fresh with Blue Note. Let's start something new. Mm. But we start with the premise. We're not going to let it de- degenerate. Because it's this thing of normalization. You know, if you mm-hmm. let things naturally run its course, it's going to become the new norm. Yep. The status quo. Yeah. So that's what I try to fight against. Yeah. Oh, man. What about the institutional level in terms of organization? I've heard some things about that as well. Ah, uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So this is so weird. I've never heard this. Again, I don't have all the facts in these. So I, again, I always welcome like external input. Mm. From what I understand, like a lot of these major festivals are organized by uh, groups that bid from the government or something for the right to organize events. So the Taizong Jazz Festival, for example, and different things, they bid... To be able to to host it basically to host it to be the ones to organize it to right. be behind the scenes, but it's all done at the last minute. Normally festivals, like I to tell you, in Montreal, the Montreal Jazz Festival, the biggest fest, mm-hmm. jazz festival in the world, and it's not really jazz anyway. But anyway, okay. <laughs> I digress. <laughs> Different story. Yeah. It's it's been run by the same group since the beginning, called the Spectra Group. Okay. They are the ones who run that festival and other different festivals in Taiwan. It changes. It potentially changes every year. Right, and it and might not be people even remotely all. attached yes. to the music world. Yeah, 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 yeah. So exactly. And it's done at the last minute. So they start organizing in the last... And I talked to one of the most famous, Pat Martino. His manager was telling me how chaotic it was. Like just getting things to work, to play in Taiwan. How difficult they were. Because everything's last minute. That's not how it should be. That causes tremendous... Listen, I'm happy that people (laughs) can make a living, really. I know how hard it is in this world. I, Mm. I applaud anyone who can survive. But... When you reward incompetency, it does tremendous harm to the dignity of whatever you're trying to do. Exactly. So I think that needs to change. And um, Taizong Jazz Festival, again, it's a, it's a government thing. Right. They receive funding from the government. And uh, one time, one artist, I think, was applying for the gold card. I think mm. he got it. Okay. But I warned him. I told him, be careful about your Taizong Festival. You were invited to play the Taizong Festival by the government, by the committee. But they never secured a work visa for you. That is on them. That's not your fault. Mm-hmm. That's totally them. Mm-hmm. The Ministry of Labor, be careful about that. So even at this, there's a lot of incompetency. Oh, man. So those things need to change. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see any silver lining? Do you see any yes. um, light uh, oh, yeah, here yeah. in Taiwan? And w- yeah, where do you see it? Also, maybe kind of the music scene in general, you know, like clubs or other kind of things. What kind of interesting positive signs are you seeing here, if at all? Okay, well, I want to say one, both positive and negative. There are a lot of Taiwan. I see I'm complaining a lot about the time, but they're actually at an individual level. There are a lot of super, super talented local and foreigners alike live in Taiwan. Mm. But um, that's the positive thing. Like super talented. But there's some negative things that they, a lot of them left Taiwan. There's a big brain drain problem. Huge brain drain. I don't, I'd have to ask him specifically, but there's this friend of mine who lives in LA. Named, his name is Eric. Eric Shen. Okay. Taiwanese guy. I think he got some kind of special funding to be able to go to the USA to study music. And he's a super talented fellow. And he actually found success. I think the stipulation was that you get the funding, you go to the USA, you're going to come back to Taiwan and share your knowledge. Okay. Something like that. Right. He went to the USA, 
found success and stayed in the U.S. and never came back to Taiwan. And the funding, the source of the super pissed right. off at him. <laughs> but him I down. don't blame him, man. <laughs> so exactly. The brain drain is a problem. But there, there's proof that there are a lot of very, very capable people in Taiwan. Right. There is proof of that. The silver lining is in the young generation. I think a lot of the younger people, because of globalization, you know, take it for their, what it's worth, whether you're against it or for it. Mm. There are some positive, like, you know, YouTube and all that stuff. They have access to a lot of information that was not available back then. So that's something. And I, I know that the education reform is going through changes as well. I heard. Yes, I don't know. Definitely a lot. So we'll see what happens. But it's all these people who are in power, who are incompetent, who, yeah. who want to hold on. That's the problematic thing. The but, Taiwanese story. But right obviously now. things will, I think always, things always, as long as we don't get nuked out. <laughs> of a bl- True. The There's oblivion. other external factors. Yeah. But... <laughs> I think history shows that we're always working towards progress. Right. The arc of history. So the people who are young right now, once they are the ones who take over, things will be better. How long do we have to wait? But I think it can be accelerated if we go through certain changes, if we insist on certain changes. Just like my little protest. I would do more of that if I were super fluent in Chinese, but I'm not. Oh, man. All right. So he's looking for allies here. Yes. Like, go for it. If you see a potential for change, be be the catalyst. But I, it's, it's difficult for me because of the language barrier. Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully we can have some action. Okay. So I know that you have some uh, Japanese guests coming uh, yeah, yes, pretty okay. soon. So we will try to wrap this up in a bit. Before we do, I was thinking we can play a little game Yes. Before we go, mm-hmm. uh, since you are the master improviser, we <laughs> will do a fire lightning round Oof. of rapid questions. I don't know if I'm good at that, but sure. <laughs> Let's try it out. Um, so I will ask you some questions. Try to elaborate a bit, but sure. as quickly as possible. Sure, sure, sure. All right. Here we go. Are you ready, sir? Let's do it. Okay. Number one, Montreal or Quebec City? Uh, Montreal. It's a, it's a bigger city than Quebec City, but Quebec City is very beautiful. It's very, very nice, but it's actually a small town. Number two, sunset or sunrise? Either or. Number three, who do you love the most? I don't know. No one. No one in particular. My future wife? I don't know. My family? My friends? Anyone who's listening out there. <laughs> Number four, best thing about Montreal? Best thing about Montreal, uh, it's the second biggest city in Canada. It's an international city, but it kind of has a small town vibe to it. Best thing about Paris? Best thing about Paris, the music scene. It's It has a rich, well, not just music, art history. So Culture. Yeah, yeah, so it's, it's huge. Number six, best thing about Taipei? I think it's a very comfortable lifestyle here. Well, inflation and the post-pandemic has made the cost of living a little bit more expensive, but still, for people who are able to earn living elsewhere from more wealthier... Remotely, right. Yeah. It's a perfect place. It's a really, really, really good place. I love it here, actually. Yeah, nice. Next, best thing about Tokyo? Tokyo, it's hardcore otaku place otaku means uh hardcore fan geek nerd yeah and i mean that in the most broad sense anything that you might be into it could be like 1930s blues or some kind of fashion from the 1950s you're gonna find a community yeah it's insane harajuku yeah but but that's just for like super geeks but like i'm talking about anything anything if you're into like uh i don't know baseball cards probably there's probably like a community of that it's incredible Name one food that you can't live without. 
I, I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. What's a food you hate? I'm generally not into certain seafoods. It's more the texture thing that's kind of yeah. What's the best compliment you've ever received? I'm an asshole. No, I'm <laughs> no, no. Uh, well, I was, you know, I was very, very pleased in the gypsy community. A lot of these gypsies told me, like, you know, you're like us. You're, you're a gypsy like us. That kind of thing. Like, you play like us. You learn like us. That was very, very, very touching. Wow. Sourdough or wheat? They're both good. Both delicious. How many hours of sleep do you need? If I have nothing to do, I'll sleep a lot. But if I, if I have a schedule, I don't need much sleep. I can run on six hours. It's probably not healthy, but I, I've been able to do You that. can do it. Yeah. Chris Rock or Will Smith? Depends who slaps harder. <laughs> if you could be any animal, what would it be? Are humans concerned? Animals? <laughs> How about human? A non-human animal. Uh, animal, I don't know. Oh, wow. Mocha. Yeah, you know, dogs, I love dogs. I really love dogs. Mocha, did you hear? Oh, oh so there you go, Mocha. <laughs> She's looking at me. Okay, dogs. We'll stick with dogs. Next one. What is something you are afraid of? Losing my mind. Yes, yes. It's a, it's a tremendous fear. Three things on your bucket list. Hopefully to get Japanese to a native level. To be able to do the work I want to do in Japan, which requires me to speak Japanese. Another bucket list. I don't know, to feel fulfilled. <laughs> Name a book or movie that has had a big impact on you. Well, watching those movies that had like a Django Reinhardt definitely changed my life even though they were not great movies right <laughs> it did change my life so let's at least give credit where credit is due exactly to that all right dark chocolate or milk chocolate i'm fine with both the latter is unhealthy but delicious coffee or tea i only drink coffee when i'm jet lagged and i only started doing that recently as i got older i realized i need my father died because i think of jet lag oh wow okay so he was traveling and he wasn't the most healthy person and so i think the the jet like you know jet like weakens your immune system right and i think it, big time he might have collapsed from that so tea 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 wildest thing you've ever done i don't know <laughs> i don't know this podcast yeah sure this podcast sure why not why not most underrated jazz musician i was talking to you about the complex history of jazz education uh the way we know it today it started around the 1970s like the first institution that offered jazz as a program in canada was in the 80s i think so it's very very new the very first institution in america was the university of north texas towards the end of the 40s and that was one of the very 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 few to offer such a program until the 70s so there was a huge gap so what that means you know jazz history starts way earlier than that i would say that jazz as we know it today with all the traditions and everything arguably started around the mid 1920s or so so the people who came up with the the curriculum don't know anything about the early side of jazz they only know it superficially so that's why early jazz is not taught in schools or superficially taught so there's no serious knowledge of louis armstrong all those older musicians it's kind of like in passing they're old they're considered old-fashioned so study those not necessarily but, will, <laughs> but they are but they are definitely underrated in that respect okay nice what is your favorite childhood memory uh, the innocence yeah it's just because i told you i grew up very sheltered we were very spoiled i'm very lucky best jazz club in the world Oof. oh well you know what i don't know if it's the best but i have distinct fond memories of this uh jazz club in fukuoka where it's kind of like it's almost like a family mm. when i went to fukuoka, fukuoka i didn't know anyone except for one person but i started going to that club and made friends with a lot of people so the person who's in japan right now is from what i met from fukuoka at that jazz club it's the big family vibe there and i really love it it's called backstage in fukuoka backstage all right shout out 
And then, who is finally the most inspirational teacher in your life? Inspirational teacher? You know what? I've had so many mentors. I cannot single it down to one person. So everyone. Sorry, yeah. Okay. Everyone is equal. Exactly. Nice. I'm a communist. Not scared. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That is the secret, everyone. You have found out this communist. <laughs> <laughs> I welcome Xi Jinping. You know what? When China finally takes over, I can say I've been to China. Oh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Guys, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding, everyone. <laughs> Please don't cancel us. <laughs> I said it. <laughs> yep, exactly. All right. So do you have any final words for the youth of Taiwan? Not only in terms of music, but generally speaking. It boils down to that thing yesterday. That young guy asked me, that young Taiwanese, how, Dennis, how are you able to talk to people? I think, I know this is very, very hard. It was very, very hard for me to get over a lot of things to really reconfigure myself so to speak but it, it is possible and try not to let external factors prevent you from doing what you want to do like you know i did all these things and i think it's a wonderful thing but there's let's talk about like you know finally there's asian representation and like all stuff but for me that was never an issue for me I, I never had to find role models if i want to do something i'm going to do it i don't care if the, no one else is doing it from quote unquote my identity mm. but if i like something i'm going to do it that's it be your own source of inspiration is what i would say Wow, that's beautiful. Be the own source of your inspiration. People out there, human beings of the universe. If you'd like to find Dennis Chang, <laughs> you can find him at DennisChang.com. Yeah, correct? I haven't updated that website in a long time, so it's just kind of something that's there. Yeah, you can find me on Instagram, really. Okay, find him on Instagram and YouTube and everywhere around the world playing gypsy jazz. So with that, we will leave you to some jazzy music you can hear the master on the guitar as well. So, all right, until next time, thank you very much for coming in. Uh, I really, really enjoyed your stories and thank you so much for sharing so openly and deeply. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, goodbye everyone. Bye. That was fun, I had a lot of fun. Yeah.